Hi, my name's Hudson, and I'm a geoholic. All right, howdy, y'all. This is Nick Smolovsky um, talking to you from uh, uh, producer Jake's uh, counter here. We are recording another Bad Elf Tech Minute. And so for today, uh, we're going to kind of get away from some of the geospatial news, and we're going to go back into space. And so if you've been listening to these Tech Minutes, you know that I like to follow uh, rockets and, and different types of news um, outside of our Earth's atmosphere here, p- possibly because as a kid I always dreamed of the stars. At any rate, uh, just within the last week or so, SpaceX has actually launched another satellite um, or, or um, another spaceship into the sky that uh, launched actually uh, 58 Starlink internet satellites in um, and three Earth observation spa- uh, spacecraft. So lots of things that went up on this one Falcon 9 rocket. Uh, we've talked about the Starlink internet satellites. This is a system that's going to be bringing free or, or low-cost internet to everybody around the world is their goal. They're putting up a ton of these things. But the interesting thing on this story is SpaceX's boat named Go Miss Tree. I know this is a weird sounding, Go Miss Tree, but this boat actually snags and captures the following payload fairings from the SpaceX rockets. And so a fairing is this um, shield that comes in two pieces that basically protects the satellites that are on top of the rocket and when it gets into atmosphere these fairings uh, jettison parachute down and just like the rockets that now land on boats out in the ocean uh, spacex founder ceo elon musk has also developed boats to catch these payload fairings which really just means that we are getting to an age where reusable rocketry is going to become commonplace and just wait we're going to be traveling in the stars sooner than you know so uh, this is going to be another bad elf tech minute if you guys need to reach me uh, my name's nick smolovsky that's n-i-k at bad-elf.com n-i-k at bad-elf.com would love to hear from you thanks everybody have a good one I'm the sun and the air. What an iconic song! Oh my god. Welcome, everybody, to episode 49 of the Geoholics, also known as the... The Ron Guidry episode. Ron Guidry. I am uh, I'm placating to our guest here. You'll find out why later. His nice. nickname, uh, Louisiana Lightning. Oh, uh, I did not know that. I did not either. He played 14 seasons with the Evil Empire New York Yankees. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> he also was a pitching coach, 2006 and 2007, World Series champion in 77, 78. Won the AL Cy Young in 1978. He went 25 and three that year. Wow, that's uh, amazing! Five Gold Gloves, four-time All-Star. He retired in 1989, and his number 49 is retired in Monument Park as of 2003. Wow! So when a number like that's retired, there hey. he gets he gets the nod. Hey, I got a kudos to you for going with the Yankee. I, I know it, that was hard. It hurts me, that but that had to be very very difficult. <laughs> 49 is not a popular number, so the options were very limited. That's a tough one. Do you think anybody will ever go 25 and 3 again? No. There's no. no way. Nobody gets that many decisions. You get like 21 and something at best, especially yeah. not this year with only 60 games. They're not right. even going to get 20 starts. But yeah. I, I don't even remember. What did uh, Doc Gooden do in 85? I think he 
was pretty close. Yeah, I can't remember what it was, but it was I, something like that. I'll have to do a little research, but I am not sure. Yeah. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, it's it's a Yankee. He also had the nickname <laughs> Gator. I don't know why. I like I like the Louisiana well, Lightning because he's from Louisiana. That's why he had the nickname. Uh, oh, the Louisiana Lightning. That kind of yeah. you know the alliteration. I like it. It makes a lot more sense. <laughs> well, guess what? We uh, we just hit eighteen thousand downloads. If you can believe that. Nice. Unbelievable, yeah. right? It grows every day. It's yeah, exponentially. It's pretty amazing. Thanks so much for listening and uh, and of course your continued support. Please uh, please consider joining the Geoholics fan club. Make a $25 contribution to the Geoholics GoFundMe account and receive a one-of-a-kind fan pack that now includes an OG t-shirt, wristband, sticker, koozie, and temporary tattoo, and courtesy of Trent Keenan and DBLS, of course. And you uh, get the joy of making me do the work to go ship them to you. So. <laughs> if that adds any bonus to it, exactly. please feel exactly. free. Um, hold on one second. <laughs> Had to give our, uh, our, our guest... Our, our, our mystery guest. <laughs> do we just have him uh, start talking on the mic and see who can guess who it is? Yeah, I'll get to that later. <laughs> All right. I think uh, there's something he can say that would pr- pretty much give it away. <laughs> All right. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube page, Brand Spanking New. Well, I think we're up to about 80 subscribers, yep. right? We're getting close to our 100 goal, so. Pretty amazing. Um, and do us a favor. Take 30 seconds, if you haven't already, and do just that. Please subscribe, because once we get that 100 number, it's all downhill from there, right, Jake? Yeah. All cool. downhill. That opening number, of course, is from the Smiths. How soon is now? Uh, a little bit about the Smiths. They were an English rock band formed in Manchester in 1982. Pretty interesting stuff here, consisting of vocalist Morrissey, of course, guitarist Johnny Marr, bassist Andy Rourke, and drummer Mike Joyce. Critics consider the band one of the most important to emerge from the British independent music scene of in the 1980s. In 2012, all four Smith's studio albums appeared on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Their 1985 album, Meat is Murder, is without question on my college years at SIUC soundtrack. Something I did not know until I was doing some research, Billy Duffy of the Cult, actually, he's uh, it's one of my other favorite bands, he played a key role in forming the Smiths by introducing Morrissey and Johnny Marr, which is pretty cool. Did not know that. So abs- one of my favorite bands, no doubt about it. Shout out to our friends of the program. First and foremost, Bad Elf GPS. You can find them at bad-elf.com. They are successfully developing high-accuracy GPS receivers for all-day data collection. Thanks to Dr. Nick Smolowski for the Bad Elf Tech Minute. And just so happened that uh, Dr. Nick came by today to show me the flex. It was pretty interesting, I got to tell you. If you're on YouTube, go ahead and give him the free plug on your head. The what? On, on your head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you guys are watching, I got uh, he happened to drop off some bad elf hats, so I told him we'd be sure to wear them tonight. At least one of us did. Um, but check out the Flex, and if you mention the Geoholics, you receive 100 bucks off your purchase, and maybe you, too, will get a fitted hat. You can be one of the cool kids. Yep. We can't forget about Land Surveyors United, the largest global community of geomatics professionals on the Internet with 17,000 members. Justin Farrow developed that website and our lovely app, so we have to shout out for that as well. You can find them at landsurveyorsunited.com. Go check it out. Become a member today. 
Yep, please do that. LIDAR News, the virtual home of the LIDAR industry. They strive to provide their readers and sponsors with the most current information about 3D laser scanning, LIDAR, unmanned aerial systems, and photogrammetry. The LIDAR News team focuses on the application of technology to solve 3D problems. Check them out at LIDARnews.com. And Parkland College, their land survey program in Champaign, Illinois. They have two schedule options, which provide opportunities to both traditional and working adults to achieve a certificate or associate's degree in land surveying. You can find out more information at parkland.edu slash surveying. And we have Unifly. Scott Ohana and his team have developed a one-stop UAV shop. Check out their How We Work link at... Their website, U-N-I-F-L-I dot A-E-R-O, to find out more. And we can we cannot forget about the tattoo man himself. If he had donated tattoos for everybody to enjoy and not have to get the real deal like Kent. Diamondback <laughs> Land Surveying, Mr. Trent Keenan, specializing in residential, commercial, and public works projects. Corporate office is located in Las Vegas, but they are licensed to work across the West. They're also proud sponsors and brand ambassadors of Get Kids Into Survey. For more information, diamondbacklandsurveying.com and getkidsintosurvey.com. Next, we have Advanced Geodetic Surveys. You can find them at agsgps.com. Unbeatable deals on new and used equipment, equipment rentals, and supplies. In fact, if you go to agsgps.com forward slash shop and use promo code GEO15, you'll receive 15% off all regular price field supplies, accessories, and safety equipment. And another shameless plug, maybe not so shameless, but uh, I just had them give me a quote on some new uh, GPS equipment. So. I, th- I thought it was going to be on the Sherpa rental for this weekend. No, no. Darn. All right. Tiger Supplies, the surveying construction and engineering superstore with over 15,000 products featuring the top brands such as Leica, Topcon, Spectra, and much more. Tiger will get you the equipment you need to get the job done right. Again, use the code GEO15 for 15% off any Adair Pro item, including tripods, bipods, prisms, prism poles, flagging tape, survey markers, and much more. Also, don't forget to check out their YouTube page for product videos, tips, and tricks. Next is uh, Cyanic Automation, developing new ways to collect daily work records and timesheets in the field, automate invoicing, search jobs by illegal addresses, stuff like that. Check out JobBook by going to their website, getjobbook.com, to see how they are solving operational problems to make your business life easier. Also, tell them you heard about it on the Geohawks, and they will give you 20% off the first year subscription. Pretty cool stuff there. Check out our friends of the program. Uh, here we are. Uh, a little different setting for us this evening. It's the Cobb Fenley. Get this. Sue Sue Studio. Oh, geez. For those of you in the business, you'll understand it. Joe Rogan's not the only one with a new studio, just FYI. Cobb Fenley is a premier multidiscipline engineering, surveying, and subsurface utility engineering firm committed to providing innovative engineering solutions with the global bettering of communities thanks to jim joe and terry for allowing us to be here and for the great hospitality let's catch up with the boys a little bit producer jake what's new man doing good guys um yeah i'm just gonna piggyback off that for just a little bit it's nice to have a fully (laughs) in-person um round of guests for today's podcast it's definitely a huge step um back to being normal um, with that being said, too, we got to do a little sports sports take with football coming back. Got my fantasy draft on Thursday. The Chiefs ring ceremony is happening right now as we speak in Kansas City. So all really great things happening that are back to normal. Things that we were kind of wishing that were going to happen. So 
It's good to see that. Um, other than that, just been sailing on the weekends per usual, just taking that last little bit of summer that we can on the evenings when it's not super, super warm, but doing good, excited. Every, everything's back in what seems like to be in the right direction. So. I agree. I agree. I've got, got a good feeling about things. I do too. Ryan, how Jake, are you? Jake, do you feel odd not having to go back to school this year? I actually have been even like waking up in the morning and thinking, like, oh, like, what do I have on my plate today? What deadlines do I have to meet? And not having that like in the back of my head is just awesome. Such a relief. Huh? It totally is. Totally <laughs> is. I have had one or one or two times over the summer where I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, did I get that turned in? And I'd be like, what am I talking about? Like, I don't have anything to turn in. So you're that's, a free man. It's definitely nice to have that behind me. Um, for me personally, it was a slow week, boys. I did absolutely nothing this weekend. Um, you know, as much as Jay saying the world's getting back to normal, it's, it's not quite the same. So we just stayed at home. It was so hot. There was nothing really to do anyway. I'm not going to get out of town like you guys and go sailing. I'm stuck <laughs> at home with the old ball and chain and a six year old, but Hey, I love them. So it works out. I hang out there and, uh, to piggyback off of Jake's piggyback, sports-wise, yeah, baseball, uh, as, as a local homer for the Diamondbacks, everybody knows I'm a Mets fan, but the Diamondbacks, Mike Hazen sent out an email to all the fans saying, basically, yeah, we packed it in this year. Wow, did he really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty impressive. No and uh, I guess uh, Ahmed, the shortstop, was making his opinion known of that. So Ooh. so that's, you know, local sports news. Interesting. But Didn't I know that? Other than uh, the, sh- the shameless plugs for Cobb Fenley, what's new with you? What's new? You know what? I was thinking about this year. First of all, I can't wait for this freaking year to be over with. Um, <laughs> but it has been an absolute shit show. I think it started out with um, Kobe's. Kobe. Yeah, mm-hmm. crash like in January, right? So there's been that. There's been fires all over the place. If you remember freaking australia nearly burnt to the ground that was this year if you can believe that we had the locust remember that there was like this locust invasion explosions the thing in uh, beirut beirut unbelievable of course the pandemic now hurricanes rioting fall of professional sports (laughs) i mean what's freaking next this is unbelievable right just listening to like when they're talking about this hurricane it's like fourth thing on the news yeah literally louisiana is flooded four at the same time but that doesn't even make the first hour yeah exactly it's crazy how bad it is right now yeah and uh i i don't want to fail to mention we have a guest um audience member friend of the program mr uh glensky glenn you have to speak loud so they can hear you say hello <laughs> and uh, just so happens that uh, a good friend of mine, John Halfcan Hansen, you know him, he is coming in town this weekend, and we are going to do a Thelma and Louise type trip and go up north, like through Prescott and Jerome and Sedona, Flagstaff, and I'm sure there's going to be some stories to come out of that. But but who's who's Thelma and who's Louise? Well, I think it's going to be more like Dumb and Dumber, but... <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Thelma and Louise, don't yeah. you have to like hold hands and drive off a cliff? Yes. That doesn't yeah. seem well, like Well, I mean, they are going to Jerome, so they'll be, you know... Haunted, yeah. haunted area. Yep. So, uh, might be some stories next week. We'll see. Uh, okay. Safety apparel, safety share. Matthew Stansbury has developed the best safety vest on the planet, a.k.a. the Party Chief, designed by surveyors, made for everyone. Check them out at safetyapparel.us. Our topic, fittingly, this week, especially with my trip coming up and the holiday weekend, hangover prevention. Um, here are seven evidence-based ways to prevent hangovers, or at least make them significantly less severe. Um, first and foremost, avoid drinks high in sugar. 
have a drink the morning after. I've always heard that. I don't think I've ever done that, at least intentionally. I have no idea. Uh, drink plenty of water, not only the day of, but the day before. Stay really hydrated. Get plenty of sleep. Eat a hearty breakfast. Consider supplements. I'm not sure what those would be, but... Uh, and just like sex, drink in moderation or not at all. So be safe. How do you hydrate? How do you have sex in moderation? No, hydrate the day before. You're like, I'm going to drink a lot tomorrow. So I'm going to hydrate today. Well, that's, that's, he always tells me the same thing for serving when you're going out in the heat. I know that, but that's a job. This is People like like to prepare to drink. It's not always spur of the moment. Yeah. You know, when you're a seasoned veteran. Yeah. What he said. (laughs) So when you just do it every day, you just hydrate <laughs> every day. Yeah. You got to prepare. Exactly, exactly. So Don't fall out of practice. Let's uh, let's let's get on with this. We got a couple uh, really fun guests this evening. So this is really funny. One of the guests I met curling, fell in love with and married. The other guest I met curling, became friends with, and I'm very intrigued with. So you get it's up to you guys to figure out who's who. God, I, I hope we know. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got uh, Louis, Louis McConey and, of course, the lovely Megan with us this evening. We're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We're going to talk about wine. We're going to have a lot of fun with this because both of these guys are very passionate about it, have a ton of knowledge, and I know it's one of those topics that could be very intimidating to people. I used to be one of those prior to meeting the lovely Megan. Before I met her, all I was drinking was Michelob Ultra, she'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's definitely expanded my um, palate, let's call it, yeah. right? <laughs> yep. So first of all, thanks for being here, you guys, Megan and Louie. Thanks sure. for being here. Uh, they both have really good podcast voices, so we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So I ask everybody this because everybody has a unique perspective on it. Let's talk just a little bit about COVID. Louis, how has it affected you? Uh, pretty much like it's affected everyone, right? Um, except that, I mean, you know me, I'm not the most social person in the world. I tend to be a little bit uh, introverted. So for the first few weeks, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. I don't have to talk to people. I don't have to see people. And and then I got just like everybody else. I just got lonely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and and then of course in the middle of it all my you know my, my mom was was not well and she mm-hmm. was uh, she was in hospice care through it and mm-hmm. so I was really isolating because she had COPD and I didn't want to bring it to her right I didn't want to take a chance on bringing it to her because I knew that would that would hasten the end right um, now I'm a little bit less worried about it because you know she passed a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm working from home and I'm I'm doing the same things everybody else is doing and and I haven't my my girlfriend lives in Queens and I haven't been able to see her since January. Wow, my gosh. Oh, wow. No kidding. Yeah. Is it cuz you're from Arizona like if you went there you'd have to quarantine for 14 days? Well, that was going else. on for a while. They actually lifted that last week. Oh, they did. So, okay. uh and now I just can't get a flight. Oh, wow. You know, it's just it's just really hard to get a flight because yeah. they're you know, they've given up so many of the routings and Gotcha. Um but I will probably Sometime over the next uh, four weeks or so, I'll be I'll be headed back to see her because that's that's the last thing. I mean, that's you know I haven't seen her since January, and that wow. just sucks. It, yeah. it really just sucks. Remember when you see her, everything in moderation. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and you say so, <laughs> and make sure to hydrate before you yeah. see her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Megan, how about you? Well, um, as we've talked, you've talked about. It couple other podcasts um of course it's changed my my career my job and i'm still doing instacart you know which is 
it's a great, I guess you would say, gap um, in between things. Um, I being the kind of opposite of Louis, being an extrovert, you know, it, it was, you know, for me, it, was, it wasn't difficult, but it was you know, one of those things where you have to stay at home and you can't go out and do things. And working Instacart really kind of helped with that because it got me out and about and talking to people and, you know, doing things that I like. But, um, you know, I think it's definitely changed, uh, like, the sports thing. And, and, and it's changed the, the kind of the format and the fabric of our country and of this world and it's it's still kind of kind of difficult to, to deal with you know yeah. you kind of wake up every day and go oh what's what are they going to tell us to do today you know and, and i understand you have to have preventative measures and everything but um i don't know if you follow the news but uh governor ducey came out with yesterday well everybody should get a flu shot now because of covid everybody should get a flu shot well you're not a doctor doug ducey <laughs> Preventative. I can kind of understand it. I know, it. but I'm. I'm and you, but just you're. You don't normally get one. No, I don't. I, don't I get, get one, one every year. Right. So yeah. So you can nothing. get one. I'll get one. Yeah. I'm not. You're, I see, you're I see such you guys a arm wrestle. Whoever She's wins. A rebel. <laughs> I am a rebel. No, decide. I'm a rebel. I, and it, absolutely. You know. Yep. It's all right. You know, when you get the flu and you're in the hospital, we'll come visit you. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, we'll bring <laughs> you some wine in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So we got two unique personalities here, which is going to be a lot of fun. And the one thing they do have in common is um, their love and appreciation of wine. So I'm excited about having this conversation. Um, so a lot of people, including myself, like I said, prior to, uh, to meeting Megan are, you know, pretty intimidated by wine for the most part, especially when it comes to like, you know, buying wine, ordering wine, it can be very complicated. So I'm hoping we can provide a little bit of basic education for the, the fine folks. Does that sound good guys? Yeah. yeah. Let's have a little fun. So let's try to keep it simple if we can. So correct me if I'm wrong. There are basically two maybe two and a half types of wine, that being red, white, and pink. Is that good? Well, those, that's yeah. like still. You have still and sparkling, right? Yeah. So you have still, which is the flat stuff, right? So sparkling. red, we're good with red. We can right. agree on that. Yeah. We can agree on white. Correct. Is it the pink we can't agree on? Rosé. Yeah, rosé. Rosé. Yeah, yeah. Pink, Okay. that's fine. And then where does champagne fit in? So champagne would be sparkling. Okay. And, so, it, and it could be rosé or it could be white. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. So not, it's not an easy, this is oh, not no. cut and dry. This oh, is no. like. No, no, no. And champagne yeah, yeah, only know. comes from champagne, <gasps> France. See, Bam. Right? Look at it. Otherwise, him. it's sparkling whatever. He's right. over there playing possum. Look at him. <laughs> comes out of nowhere. <laughs> I've been to a few vineyards. <laughs> there you go. All right. So four basic, again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but four basic taste categories that wine can fall into, that being bold, earthy, fruity, and light. Okay. It's a, it's sure. a great way to simplify. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. If you're going to simplify it to yes, absolutely. And then this is where people completely lose their minds, and that's the different tasting notes and aromas and how people are able, like like sommeliers, for example. You know, it's what from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. These, these folks can taste wine and tell you like the vintage, where it's from, you know, the whatever. I mean, is that true? I mean, can yes. people yeah, actually absolutely. do absolutely, that? Yes. Yeah. What now? How about you, Louis? Are you, where are you? And as far as being able to do that? Well, so, uh, you know, a little backstory. I was a 27 year smoker. Yeah. Uh, I quit smoking about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. 
So uh, for a long time, I was damaging my ability to taste or smell anything. So I will probably never get to that level wow. where I can where I can identify a, a block in a vineyard. I know somebody who can. I know several people who can. It's crazy. Uh, but I'll probably never get to that level. But my you know with practice, yeah, uh, you improve. So it must take person a person like just years and years of tasting millions of how many wines does it take to taste like to taste before you get to that point? Are people just born with the ability to do that? No. You have to you have to build that somehow, right? You have to build. Well, you know, there are certain things you have to learn, right? And you know, the first thing you learn is, well, can I tell the difference between old world and new world? Old world is Europe, new world is everywhere else, okay. right? Um, and there are distinct differences between old and new world wines. New world wines tend to be higher in alcohol content, which means that they feel hotter mm. when you drink them. Um, they tend to be bolder. They tend to be fruitier. Old world wines tend to be uh, more finessed, right? A little bit lower in alcohol content. Old world wines are frequently, very frequently, blended and not a single varietal. Um, and there's a reason for that, right? Because n- nowhere in the old world is like Napa Valley, right? Th- right? They don't have sun 360 days a year there. So they would, in most places, like... Bordeaux, for example, they would grow Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Cabernet Franc. They would grow all these different grapes at the same time because they never knew when a bad weather event was going to happen right. and destroy one of those grapes right when it was ready to be harvested. They'd still have the other grapes that that, mm. that they could harvest then later. That's why. And so most years they have them all, so they blend them all together. That's why most old world wines are blended. Right? Gotcha. So those are the kinds of things you can start to pick up. You can start to realize this doesn't taste like what my Napa Valley wine tasted like because it, it, it's it's blended and mm. because it has characteristics from all these different grapes together, right? And yep. Yeah. So does it matter? Are they are they blending like what are the type different types of grapes that they could blend together? Is it like taking a Merlot and sure? Yeah. Well, and uh, so Old World for the most part, you're going to have a lot more regulations of what you can blend together and call it something. Mm-hmm. So so in in the new world, and again, each country or region has its own rules about what you can call a Cabernet, you know, how much percentage of Cabernet has to be in there. Where in the old world, it is like Bordeaux is, if you're going to call it a Cabernet, it has to be X, Y, Z much Cabernet, and they will blend other things in there. But, you know, um, it could be, you know, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Carmenere, you know, things like that. But they have a lot more regulations. Um, there's, you know, there's could be a guy coming and knocking on your door and asking to, you know, taste a bottle of your wine from so such and such um, vintage and asking you the makeup. And if you lie and he knows, he just says, nope, you can't bottle this year or nope, you can't sell it as this this year. And, yeah. you know, you have to sell it as a less less desired label or things like that or you know burgundy's even worse you know yeah. i mean you can't there's things that you can and can't do mm. um so they're they're a lot tighter on the regulations but that isn't such a bad thing it has to do with tradition and it has to do with what they perceive is the quality of the wine that they're making so i mean you can look at it either way for sure. Now I'm going to ask a question. It's going to come across inappropriate. I apologize in advance. When you do like the tasting, mm-hmm. and if you're trying to be like a sommelier, do you spit or swallow it? I know that sounds wrong, but like, see do that, you spit it out? See that thing right there? That's your spit cup? That's, <laughs> yeah. 
that's, your, well, that's your spitter? N- number one, I mean, we, we have Louis uh, blessed us by bringing some really great wines to taste today. And I just, you know, if we taste in some different order, I might spit it out just so, you know. I got you. I just didn't and know if like sommeliers are just lit yeah. constantly. Well, how could you, how could you be that, that smart well, and that? <laughs> sommeliers typically spit because yeah, yeah. They they're drinking to. all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If they don't, then they, they can't stay. Gotcha. Sober. So, right, so little short story. The first wine show that I went to as a buyer, um, I was a buyer for a country club and I got to go to these wine shows and taste all this wine. I had no idea that you should spit. <laughs> oh my God. Good day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah, one okay? time. All right. Lesson learned. Well, see, I'm just learning ahead of time. <laughs> but, you know, you can still taste it. You know, you can still get all of the nuances and all of, you know, the aromas and the bouquet and all that other mm. stuff that you're supposed mm. to do if you spit it out. So you Swish it around, get the thing. Yep. All right. Spit it out. I, I will probably not do it on camera because, you know, it's not, uh, it's not lady. On. It's not ladylike. And I haven't done this in a while. So By, <laughs> by the way, you, you guys can start pouring those wines any time. Sure. <laughs> um, so let's let's go down this path. Uh, trying to keep it somewhat general. Um, let's talk about like the color of wine. You know, in my mind, it's just like okay, um, red wine, red grapes. Da, da, da. Is that the way it goes or no? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, there's all these little nuances, right? So um, red wine has come in contact with the skins of red grapes, right? White wines comes from typically white grapes, but there are white wines. I mean, there's, we're going to have something right now that it does come in white form if you don't let it have contact with those skins. So um, you have Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc that are basically like, and maybe a few others that are like your white grape-ish wines. But like um, Pinot Grigio, right? That is that it actually means grigio means gray so it's a gray grape it's not exactly white so you know you could a white grape be a red wine no 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 but if you so if you if you take white grapes yeah and you process them like red grapes and ferment them on the skins and leave Mm -hmm. them in contact with the skins for three days or eight days or whatever then you get what they call an orange wine Mm -hmm. oh okay so add that to your color Yeah, right. <laughs> we're this, a solid these three. are the reasons we were hesitating earlier. Right. I was like, oh, orange. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So for a wine, this is probably going to go a little bit more, um, get in the weeds a little bit on this one. So, you know, we talked about bold, earthy, fruity, and light. I mean, what determines where a wine ends up as far as those tastes go or whatever? It really comes from the grapes themselves, right? Um, different grapes have different characteristics, and there's actually a, a chart that I have. I have a big one. It's about the size of that whiteboard behind you, right on on my wall. It's called the DeLong's uh, Wine Grape Chart or something. <laughs> it's and it looks like a it looks like a periodic table, oh, mm-hmm. wow, right? Yeah. But it has every grape and it has all the characteristics that you would expect from that grape in terms of color, in terms of Intensity of flavors, flavor profiles, you know, whether the flavors are going to tend to be, uh, you know, funky flavors like the woods and, and that kind of thing, or whether the flavor is going to be more fruity or more minerally or, or whatever, right? Yeah, 
but and it has to do with where those grapes were grown. I was going to say the region. Yeah, right? region. Yeah, the mm-hmm. region. And I mean, again, when you were talking about sommeliers and, and if you know how they do this, I mean, these guys can tell you if it was on a south facing slope or a north facing slope, or maybe it was a valley. There's, I mean, there's. You take take a Cabernet from Napa Valley, but it's from Howell Mountain, and you can take a Cabernet from Napa Valley on Valley floor. And they are completely different. Hmm. Wow. Different different flavor characteristics, different bouquet, different nuances. Well, how, would most people notice that difference, do you think? You'd be surprised on what most people notice, but they're afraid to say. Hmm. Or so, they're, not, they're not confident. Exactly, in they're that. not confident. Right. Exactly. Like, confident. Oh, I think exactly. I get yeah. this, right. but I don't want to sound right. like an idiot. Cause right. Yep. right. The, and, the chart and they might that notice the difference and not know how to, how to describe it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right. good point. Because right. it's like very vague terms, right. bold, earthy, fruity. Right. Like, like, how do you quantify that? Right. So there's a really neat, it's called an aroma wheel, and it's very similar but to the chart you mentioned, mm-hmm. but it's literally like a shrunk down version of mm-hmm. that. And it's great. I mean, you can get one online or whatever and print it out, or some, some restaurants have them now. Mm-hmm. And you can just go, oh, well, you know, I, I want something that's fruity or I want something that's minerally. And you go to that little aroma wheel and go, I wanted this. There you, you know? go. It narrows it down <laughs> for you. Yeah. So, I mean. And the different vintages, I mean, again, most people don't understand this. I'm one of them. I'm acting like I do, but I don't. Um, certain years in these different regions um, may have got more rain or something that season, right? So mm-hmm. that's going to have an effect right. on the flavor profile from that particular year. Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So what about like the fires? Does that affect the taste of the oh, grapes? Yeah. yeah, they can get oh, smoked sure. in. They, will they, so they'll be ruined or will they just add another dynamic to that wine? There's, there's actually some argument in the industry about that. Um, uh, a lot of wineries have, have a lot of vineyards have uh, had to destroy whole crops because of smoke, smoke taint. Because you don't know the smoke taint until you distill, until you distill, until you uh, ferment and, and and make the wine, then the smoke taint comes out. Hmm. Um, but there are some things that people are <coughs> discovering now that remove the taint. Oh wow! And the pro and the winemaking process. I haven't read too much about it, so I don't know exactly how that works. But uh, you know, th- there might be hope for that. Yeah, going forward. Interesting. But, yeah. So some places will just get rid of it before they even. If, ferment if, it and just yeah. like this yeah. probably isn't going to work it's not because worth yeah. they can't sell the grapes anyway right yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It, it's really shameful it's that we're doing this you know we're having this conversation how many years in a row <laughs> with the fires, <laughs> with the fires stuff? Yeah. yeah i mean and, 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 i mean this this country in california and even oregon and um the major wine producing countries or major wine producing regions of of the u.s have been pretty lucky when it comes to problems with, you know, uh, weather and things like that, um, and you go to Burgundy and you get what they call shatter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they'll get a hailstorm early, early in the fall, and it'll absolutely decimate the entire crop. Hmm. They're done. They can't. I mean, there's no, there's no growing those grapes back. Where in in Napa and Sonoma and and, and parts of Oregon and Washington, where they've had these fires, you know, there is a little bit of kind of wiggle room in certain times if if they haven't all been burned down, you know. Which, you know, what was that mm. last year where they had like literally wineries burned to mm. the ground? Yeah. 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 It's crazy. So, Louis, let me ask you this: um, like a lot of the like the the flavor notes or profiles, how much of that comes from like the, the soil? 
and how much of that comes from, say, the barrels that the wine is uh, is, is stored in? It, it, well, it really it really kind of depends on on what you're growing and where you're growing it and how you're processing it. And and it's not just the soil and the barrels, right? It's the variety the, the variety of grape that you're growing. Okay. It's the um, what kind of yeast you're using to ferment it, right? That that imports its own effect on it. Um, when you do things, when you put it in the barrel, or when you put it, you know, or if you ferment it in stainless steel instead, sometimes you can tell that with white wines. Yeah. There are some white wines that, that are just wonderful when they're fermented in stainless steel rather than fermented in, in concrete or wood or something. Um, it, it's, hard to say, it's hard to quantify how much, right? How much, in, in the old world, they don't think about that stuff as much. They, they think more about what's in the soil than really almost anything. Um, in the new world, we tend to think more about what is the winemaker doing mm-hmm. and how's he affecting it. Yep. Right. And we can make wines from the same block and the same vineyard. We can make two different batches of wine at the same time, handle them differently and get entirely different wines. Mm. You know, so. Yeah. So is, is it a very controlled environment? Like the winemaking process is super controlled. Like, do you have to make sure you keep out? I don't. I don't know. Whatever. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, contaminants. Contaminants. Sure. There you go. Well, any, and any does it have to be like I think about like making beer? You know, everything has to be so freaking yeah, beer is, clean. Beer is a lot more science right. than wine is. Okay, that's that's right. That's my wine, question. Wine is yeah. more art than science. Beer is more science than art. And I, I give beer makers a lot of credit because I don't think I could do that shit. Yeah, I honestly don't. <laughs> I was yeah. just we, thinking when he was talking it. about like that we chart of all the stuff. Remember, Helton had one in his brew house there for beer. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was yeah, the exactly. same idea. Yeah, no, I, I I really understand the wine making process. And then when Kent and I tried to brew beer, I was like, oh, oh man, this is you know something completely different because everything is it's like having to go into like a airtight uh, place and you know your temperature has to be just this so for this long and I mean you do have to have that in fermentation but Mm -hmm. I mean we're talking about like just completely in a vacuum Mm -hmm. where wine is you know it's got more of that art to it yeah it's (laughs) it's it's a lot of letting the yeast do what it's going to do Um, you want to control things like temperature because yeast that ferments at higher temperature Things happen faster. You can have off flavors at temperatures that are too low. The yeast might become sluggish, and it mm. might take a really long time to ferment. So those are the kinds of things that you want to try and control. But you don't have to have the same kind of control as you do when you're when you're, you know, cooking a mash batch mm-hmm. for for beer or or to distill something. You know, right. It's, it's kind of a different different animal that way mm-hmm. yeah so when, when you say you take two blocks from the same vineyard and based on what the winemaker does they can turn out entirely different what are some things that they can do because the grapes are the same no mm-hmm. what are some things that they, they that the variables that they can change to make it entirely different well they can adjust things like uh like the acid level for example um they can add tannic acid which tannic acid is something that occurs naturally in wine right but we can take tannic acid if you feel that you would like this batch to be a little bit more acidic. Maybe you're going to ferment it to a higher alcohol content. You might want to balance that out by adding acid to it. Or if you feel that it's too acidic, you might want to water it down a little bit so that you lower, you reduce the acidity. Um, it's it's 
something that that a lot of winemakers don't do is like add sugar to improve, to increase the alcohol content. That's called chapitalization. Um, it can be done. Those are the kinds of things that you can do. Some of the things, some of those things are done regularly, and some of those things most winemakers won't do unless they absolutely have to. Um, inoculation with the yeast, they might choose to to uh, to ferment the two different batches with different yeasts. You know, you might use a uh, a yeast that's typically used for champagne and and uh, uh, has a very high alcohol uh, tolerance, so it'll ferment completely dry. But then with another batch, you might decide, well, I want it to be, I want to have a little bit of residual sugar, so you'll use another strain of yeast that doesn't have that high alcohol tolerance, hmm. and will die off earlier in the fermentation process and leave just a touch of sugar behind, and that'll give you a different flavor profile, right? Well. So, so, so the grapes are really the, the base layer, and then the additives are what kind of changes it up and how it's handled. Nerding out on winemaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's kind of like... No, no, well, I love it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like and Brian Helm was talking about the yeast, like, just going crazy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you got to control that stuff. Right. Yeah. So, well, yeah. you, can even, you can even start it in the field. So, I mean, you can have two blocks side by side, and, and one, maybe you you know, you're letting some things drop off of it. So you've got a lot lower yield of Mm -hmm. fruit and you're letting that fruit maybe hang a little bit longer, you know, and plump up a little bit more and it creates the higher alcohol levels. Because it creates more sugar to ferment. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's pretty amazing that, I mean, you could literally have two vines that are side by side that, produce if you if you before so uh there's a period in and when the grapes first grow they're all green they're all little green marbles right and then about halfway through the season they start to change color and they start getting big hmm. and big is a relative term most wine grapes only get, get to be about that big they're not like table grapes you you might right before they start to change color on some of your vines you might go out and cut half the bunches off and just leave them on the ground hmm. And then the other half, the bunches get all of the energy from the vine. But then in the other block, you've left all the bunches. So the bunches in the, where you dropped fruit are going to tend to be sweeter, right? They're going to tend to be bigger. They're going to they're gonna maybe have more phenolic compounds. So you'll smell more things. You'll see, you know, the color might, extraction might be better. Whereas the other grapes don't have as much of that because the vine had to give that energy and that sugar and everything to out. more spread it out to more yeah. bunches right yeah hmm. so. um so maybe I don't, help me understand this so like different regions produce certain kinds of grapes better than other regions is that is that right yes. is it like is it as easy as like so if you follow the latitude of napa let's say and you follow that latitude around the globe is everything at that latitude good for producing that type of grape? No. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because <laughs> of elevation, everything, I guess. Everything in that latitude is good for growing grapes. Okay. Right. Right? Yep. But depending on the, the local, you know, the local climate, the local soil types, um, access to water, um, most vineyards are, are near water. Yeah. Gotcha. Almost everywhere, you know. Except for um, Arizona. Minor detail. Well, <laughs> Minor the, detail. The, the, the water, the we're going to get to that. The water in southern Arizona comes from the monsoon, yeah. typically, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. true. T- t- really hard to dry farm in Arizona. Yeah. 
I yeah. really appreciate you pulling up latitude so it feels like a geoholics conversation. Little survey there. Mm-hmm. You like that, huh? Um, so some of these, like, you know, these tasting notes that, and I, I still have a hard time understanding it, although sometimes I can, I can taste them when we, when we taste or drink wine. But, like, where does stuff like, like the licorice taste or the petroleum or where does it come from? I mean, you're not growing it with licorice, you know? I mean, how, where, do these, where do these flavors or these tasting notes come from? So it's explain just explain that you know, one what, there, hot shot. <laughs> I just I hear you. I hear you in uh, your voice in my head when oh I I have licorice, uh, <laughs> or uh, a favorite of a one of my old uh, coworkers, uh, lead pencil. Lead how pen. did how did they get lead pencil in there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has to be comparative <laughs> to something you've had before. I mean, petroleum. Well, that, that can't be. And that's oh, the no, big, but the petroleum is very evident. It's very evident in rieslings and, and yes. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, what the hell? How does this happen? Describe that. What what is that? Petroleum. Like, petroleum. <laughs> you put your nose in the glass and it smells like a gas tank. Yeah. Okay, like gas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and people who love rieslings will not pick up a riesling if they can't get the petroleum when they put their nose in the glass. They, they just, like it. It's just mm-hmm. not yeah, yeah. Because they know they're going to get a good riesling when they smell that. It doesn't taste like gasoline. No. Yeah. We it's, call those people weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> or it's, it's it's just a volatile phenolic compound that comes off the wine that and and this is the answer to your question, right? And and this is why I hate discussions though about about descriptors because descriptors only matter if the people you're telling them to understand them right right if somebody says to me it it has hints of elderberry well if i've never tasted an elderberry i really don't know what the fuck that means yeah exactly but what it means in a in a literal scientific sense is that there are phenolic molecules in the wine that have developed either from the grape or from the winemaking process that are similar in structure to what you smell or taste. And so they trick your brain into thinking that that's mm. what it's detecting because it's the closest thing it has. Yep. Right? Yep. And everybody's taste is different right. on top of that. So yeah. just because I, well, maybe not petroleum because petroleum is usually pretty evident. But you know, if I taste, say, eucalyptus, mm-hmm. and you don't taste eucalyptus, you taste something else, you know, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Correct. Yeah, it's just exactly. how you're interpreting that molecule. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, I, and Jake, you actually brought up a good point. Um, it has to relate to something you tasted before. Yeah, like if you've never had an experience with eucalyptus, why you would never know. To, like what you're saying with elderberry, like if you don't know what it is, yeah. how could you? You would not just going to think like, oh, like that's yeah. eucalyptus if you don't know what that is. Right, right, yeah. So like these sommeliers, I mean, it goes back to that. I mean, they taste gazillion wines in order to have experienced those different right. tasting notes. I guess. Yeah. Now, like serving and stuff like that, like baseball players, you look at these juniors and these sons of guys that do that. The sommelier or something that's like passed down. Hereditary? Yeah. <laughs> no. No. I, I, I don't know if no. people do that, no. if it's like their taste buds are naturally genetically enhanced like that. I'm just curious. Jeez. Yeah. They're looking at me like I got maybe. two heads over here. Maybe. I don't, I don't, you know. Is it possible to so. be born with more taste buds than than someone yeah. else? So actually, Sherry is my girlfriend. We were just we were just discussing this this afternoon. There, there, about fifty percent of the people have normal ability to taste and taste and smell are really the same thing, right? You can't taste without smell, and ninety percent of your taste comes from smell. Mm-hmm. And um, about fifty percent of people have a normal ability to taste and smell, and 
about 25% of people have what are what they call super tasters. They can taste things that other people can't. And then about 25% of people actually have a lower ability to taste and smell than the 50% that are normal. The super tasters, to some extent, you can train yourself to increase your ability to do that. But, hmm. um, you know, like I said earlier, I was a 27-year smoker. There's only so much I can train myself to do. Hmm. I've done some damage to, to, the, to the ganglia up in my nasal cavity that's responsible for all of this mm-hmm. yeah. with cigarette smoke for so many years. Uh, there's only so much I'm going to be able to do with it at, at some point. I can't be a super taster like some people can be. What about uh, cocaine? Does that allow you to be a super taster? Opens up the receptors and yeah. you're like, give me more. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's a great, yeah, think about it. I would, I would suggest probably that not. that probably is going to damage yeah. that, those nerves. Those ganglia. going to get the ganglia up on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cocaine usually leads to cigarette smoking for most people. So. And when I first got into um, wine and wine tasting and she scared me from the business. I thought she was the when I first got into cocaine. No, well, um, I, I had a bout with you know, sinus infections and whatever, and I um, used those uh, Zycam swabs, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they say the best ones are the ones that you put in your nose, right? So I, I had used that, and then I stopped. I couldn't smell anything. And you taste wine with this first. Not, I mean, mm. taste buds, yeah, they have something to do with it, but your nose is what is going to lead you down the whatever you taste path. Sure. And one of my wine reps said to me, You stop that. Really? Stop putting that thing up. Sorry, stop putting that thing up your nose. Yeah. Because you are going to eventually damage those receptors. Wow. So the, to go back to the question about Coke, probably damaged. Probably damaged. Okay. Even even Flonase is known to reduce your ability yeah. to smell. Yeah, hmm. and I and I noticed it. I mean, for a couple of years, I, it was deadened. I, I had a really hard time because I was just, you know, that was the only thing that helped me kind of get through those those sinus infections and stuff and, and get them out of yeah. my system quick. And yeah, it definitely didn't help. So we, we just tasted one of Louis's wines. What did mm-hmm. we have there, Louis? So this is this is uh, actually my my favorite Arizona winemaker, uh, Laramita. Gotcha. Sellers. He's out of Wilcox. Uh, okay. Greg, Greg Gonnerman is the is the owner of Chirico Ranch Vineyards, which is their vineyard, and uh, and the winemaker, the head winemaker at Laramita Sellers. And this is a geeky wine. And I brought this specifically. He makes he makes a lot of really great wines. He makes great some great French style wines. Um, he does a like a Marsan Roussan blend. He does a Bordeaux blend. Um, but this in particular, I brought because. He's doing something that, that's very rare, that very few people do anywhere. It was a, a, a technique, it was a viticultural technique that was developed at UC Davis in testing, and he's doing it in production. And what he's done is he's, he's put a Pinot Noir grapes in Wilcox, which is high desert. He's at 4,500 feet, I think, something like that. You'd never, you'd never expect to, to grow Pinot Noir south of Oregon, really, or, or Sonoma, yeah. you know. Um, but what he's doing is the grapes, of course, we're in Arizona, we're in the desert, everything buds out early. We start, our, our vines start making buds in the beginning of March, right? It might take an extra month before that happens in, in even Sonoma. So his Pinot Noir buds out along with all the rest of his grapes. And then as soon as the flowers come out, 
and the flowers, you know, th- that's where the, the grapes are going to be. And they're little tiny flowers. As soon as the flowers come out, he, he cuts all the flowers off the, off the vines, hmm. right? Drops them all to the ground. And then in the middle of the season, he kind of counts backwards from where he wants to harvest. He wants to harvest in the end of October, beginning of November, right? So July or so, June, maybe late June, early July, he goes out and he prunes all the vines back, all the Pinot Noir vines back as if it were January, right back to the canes, right wow. back to the, um, to the canes. Mm-hmm. Two buds, one bud, and then they go into a kind of a mini hibernation, right? They, they shut down as if it were winter for about a week to two weeks, and then they butt out again, and they start their season over wow. right in time for monsoon, right? <laughs> so then he gets this great monsoon activity as, as the, the, the vines are growing, and then they start to, they start to fruit, and they hit Verizon after he's harvested all the rest of his grapes, and they start making color, and then the bunches grow out, and in the cooler weather, in the high altitudes that Pinot Noir loves, with plenty of monsoon moisture and plenty of monsoon cooling winds at night, and he gets a great Pinot Noir out of it. That's amazing. So this is the geekiest wine I could yeah, think to no, bring. I, you know, I love it. Yep. And it's it, very, it's definitely very old world. Very old world yep. style Pinot yep. Noir. You guys, like you guys a, aren't like going to believe me, but I knew that was Pinot Noir. Because <laughs> you saw the, okay, bottle, the label? So, or so also, uh, I swear to God. He also knew so it was red God. wine. Describe <laughs> it there. Uh, a lot of petroleum. <laughs> to say red. No, Start there. Petroleum. Um, maybe a little leathery. It's leathery, it's yep. funky, it's got some forest floor action. Boom! Yeah. I feel like you just can get, say I get, anything. I get, it's like, oh, I get cedar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get a lot of cedar. A lot of cedar, yep. yeah. For sure. See that? You guys think I'm just a pretty face. You're just going to oh, say it's grapey. I, I, I think... It's grapey. Not to, not to blow <laughs> Kent's head up even more, but he is a super taster. I, you know, <laughs> we honestly. do have a bigger hat over here <laughs> if he needs it to fit it in there. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the steps involved with making wine. Um... Obviously, so like the, these vines, some of these vines, like in, I, like when I've traveled around with Megan tasting wine, in some of these older uh, older vineyards, the like the the trunk, I don't know, I, I don't trunk know, trunk mm-hmm. of these of some of these vines is like could be eight nine inches round. I mean, mm-hmm. just massive because they've been there for so long. I don't know, how many years? I have no idea. Well, I mean, like the ones that we had at Michael David and, yeah. and or, or down in uh, in Lodi. I mean, those things were. Monster. So that's, those are like, re- well, I mean, they could Different be kind 70. Of grape though, se- right? Well, yeah. I mean, but you were talking about 70, 80 years old. And that's not old when you're talking about old world. Well, that's what I was thinking. That's okay. why I wanted to bring it up because I was curious like, 70, 80 years, like some of the ones that we've had. Yeah. But like old world, some of those vines are how old? 100 well, I mean, years well, older. Actually, so there, there was a thing that happened. Um, and you probably know what I'm talking about. The, the, <laughs> There was a thing that happened in Europe that wiped out almost all of the vineyards about, oh, I want to oh say about 100 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what happened was somebody brought some grapes, some grape vines from, from the Americas over to Europe to hmm. see what they could grow and if they would make good wine. And uh, there was a, a, a louse that's native to the, to, to the Americas. Hmm that loves grapevine roots, and it's called phylloxera. And it had never been in Europe before, so the European vines had no resistance to it, and it nearly wiped out all of Europe's vines. Wow. So 
there's really nothing in Europe that's much older than about 100 years right now. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it starts with um, the harvest, right. right? Is there, there's different ways of harvesting grapes, right? I mean, there's some of these mass production uh, vineyards. I mean, they use automated Oh yeah, harvesting. Some of those harvesting machines right. are really cool. I mean, they just they run right up the right up the row, and the row goes right down the middle of the machine. And when the machine passes over the the vine, the clusters are left with no grapes on them. It's just it's just the the That's stems. Crazy. It's like somebody went and literally picked, and the berries are perfectly preserved, and and they hardly break any of them. I can't I, That's I, just, I can't figure out how they how they figured out that technology. It's the coolest thing in the world. It's really awesome. And the. Uh, the harvest has to happen like there's a there's a small window right right that the harvest and does that window change every year or is yes. it sure. depending on the the weather that year or well, the, what's what's happened before that you have to like go back to what's happened in the in the vineyard before that you know are those grapes ready you know are they what are they at the point you want them to be there's like a little device and it measures something called bricks which is basically you're measuring the sugar in that wine and depending depending on what you're what you're making is where you want those bricks to be so you're out there i mean they're doing it by laser talking about surveying and mapping and drones i mean they're doing that kind of stuff by laser now so it's it can be very manual or it can be very you know, up, just hands off and you send up the drone and it measures the bricks in the vineyards and mm -hmm. okay, we're ready to go. It's time to harvest. But if you know that you're not quite there, but there's going to be weather or there's going to be, you know, something else going on, you don't have a crew to harvest. You don't have those big machines and you do it by hand and mm -hmm. you need to find, and it's, and again, we're talking about the last 10, maybe pushing it to 15, but more like 10 years where, the people who work in these vineyards are immigrants, mm. and many of them who are illegal, who couldn't get here, you know, they're not here mm -hmm. because they can't be or they won't be or whatever. So, I mean, you take that into consideration before harvest, too. Mm -hmm. So you got to get, like, there's like four steps that you have to, four, 400 before harvest. What's the sure. window like? I mean, is it just like, is somebody testing every day, like when it gets close to be time we, to harvest? We do, we do um, uh, Cluster testing. So, so a couple of weeks ago, I was in the vineyard, and I and they said to me, "Well, we want to we want to know we want to test the Alianico, and we want to test the Sangiovese." So I walked through the Sangiovese block, and randomly, and literally, because you don't want to you don't want to um, uh, let your eye change how you're gonna you know you you want a, a truly random sample of grapes. So literally, I would walk up walk up a row, close my eyes, turn my back to the row and go like this. And the first bunch that I grabbed, I would cut off and drop in the bucket. And that's so that I'm not unintentionally picking only the nice looking bunches, right? Yep. And get about a dozen of those into a bucket. And then they mash them all together and they test the bricks. They test the pH. They test for a bunch of other things. All of those things have to be in balance. Right, the bricks might be right, but if the pH is way too low, they still don't want to make it. They want to let it hang until the pH comes up a little bit, and they kind of watch those both maybe and see how they're acting with each other. And and then, you know, <laughs> things happen. I was supposed to go up. We were supposed to do a harvest last Saturday, and Friday night at eight o'clock, the vineyard manager called me up and he said, "We can't harvest tomorrow. We just had a horrible rainstorm and the vineyard's flooded. Nobody can walk down there." Wow. And we have to do everything by hand, you know. Yeah. So we can't do it till Monday. Hmm. By Monday, it'll be dried out. 
So those grapes had an extra two days hang time on them that they didn't intend for them to have. And that can make a difference. And it can make a difference. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. But there was just nothing to do for it because we couldn't get to them. We literally couldn't get to the grapes. There was too much, you know, the mud was this deep. Yeah. Interesting. So. Well, well, so we, we just tasted another one of uh, the wines that Louis brought. What is this one? This is a wine that I made. It's a Sangiovese. Right. Um, I made this in 2019. Yeah. Beginning of 2019. So it's almost two years old. It's about 13.9% alcohol. Um, I'm getting... Um, this is from... I have to show this because it's it's version 9.0. So did you actually do so cool. eight ones before no, this? My, my, my naming convention, you know, because I'm, I'm a computer geek too, right? I'm oh, a okay. software engineer. My naming convention comes from my first wine that I ever made was in 2011. So that was version 1.0. Okay. The second wine I made was in 2011. That was version 1.2, right? Got it. And so the, the first number is typically the year and... And then how many wines did I make that year? This wine at the Emerging Winemakers Competition last year, which is what's on my shirt. Right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, th- this wine got an honorable mention. I missed, a, I missed a medal by one point. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Um, since you mentioned the points, you know, there's like, whatever, 95 point wine, this and that. Who determines what what point wine is that like is there like who a, doesn't no but i mean is there like a <laughs> govern, is there a governing body that says no that's a 95 no. point wine I mean, no those that point structure comes from uh i can't think of his name robert oh, yeah. robert uh, 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 God. terrible we're terrible people yeah. um so you have wine spectator you've got yeah. wine advocate you have james suckling you've got um i mean there's everybody and their brother i mean um bevmo or not bevmo Bevmo or Total that has oh, Bevmo Wilfred Wong, uh-huh. um, this Asian guy that walks around. He works for Bevmo, so you know that he's going to mm. rate the Bevmo wines better because he works for Bevmo, right? And there are people who um, they are Burgundy specialists, or they're um, California specialists, or they like Old World, they like New World, and so they tend to rate these wines differently based on their own palate. Sometimes they're not always just you know neutral parties so this is where i always say and megan you and i have these conversations the whole wine industry is a racket <laughs> it's a freaking what, racket wait what is it a really racket is. according to kent it's a racket mm-hmm. because exactly. certain influential people can rate certain Absolutely. wines and directly so, influence the sales sure. of that particular absolutely wine. yes that person could be bought yeah. off yeah isn't that what warren buffett does like daily with like yeah. billions of dollars, yeah. So, so it's all a racket, everything. I, and and you can if, that rating can affect so many things. Because people so that like novices things. like myself, I go in and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get my dad a bottle of wine. I'm like, this one's highly rated. Boom, he's gonna love it. Exactly. And well, I know but that's nothing. the thing. You don't know if yeah. he's gonna love it because I'm taking Willy Wong's word for exactly, it. Exactly. You know, Robert <laughs> Parker. Robert, Robert Parker. Robert, thank you. Robert, he's, Parker he's a, Robert Parker developed the original yeah. point system that, that we see on so many bottles now. And I, I have a good friend who's a wine writer and, and, and actually he's a wine podcaster too. He has a podcast called The Honest Pour um, where he interviews winemakers around the world. And uh, he wrote an article early on for one of the big wine magazines that I proofread for him. Hmm. Um, where he basically, you know, he basically took the, the Parker rating system to task. And, you know, and the, the take on it was, when was the last time you saw a wine that was rated under 89? Right. 
Yeah, you don't. No, because nobody's don't. gonna. No one's gonna put up a little thing on the on the little shelf talker right. thing. Like this is a seventy-five point wine. Mm, they just no. don't. They don't rate them that way because <laughs> because they you know, it's like the it's like the, the 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 best of things that they do in some of the in some of the newspapers. It's like well, buy a subscription and we'll make you one of the best of. Right. That's how it works with wine ratings. Sure. I tell people all the time, pe- people who you know are just interested in having a decent bottle of wine with their pasta on Tuesday night. Yep. There's no reason at all that you can't go to Safeway or Total Wine and find a bottle of wine for under $20 that you can be perfectly happy with. Yep. And we're going to get to that exact point here in just just a bit. I want to get through the process of uh, making wine. So after the harvest, there's the, uh, what is it, destemming, I guess, maybe sorting. Yes, sort um, and then destem. Called, yeah. is this, part, this is the crush, right? Yeah. Um, what's that all about? Well, that's, is that just kind of cleaning up the grapes? Yes. Like you have these bundles or whatever of grapes, and then you kind of pluck them off of there, and that's like kind of, most yeah. most of the time, theoretically, what you want is just the berries. Yeah, right. Gotcha. So you want to get rid of the stems, and then and you want the berries to be whole until you're ready for the crush, right? And then when you crush them, you cause the berries to burst so that the juice comes out of them. And then for red wines, the berries and the skins and the juice. All ferment together and and stay together until you until you rack the juice off of the skins or press the juice off of the skins. Um, and and white wines it's just reversed, hmm. right? Okay. So you just you, you crush, and then you press, and then you ferment. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that way you're not soaking in with the skins. Right. Sometimes winemakers will make the decision to leave some of the stems in because they want some of the characteristics from the stems. Like like added tannins, maybe they feel the grapes aren't tannic enough, and they can get added tannins because tannins come in wood, right? Is that a decision that's made on the fly, or is that made going into the whole process? Like, are they like, oh, we're going to add some stems? I mean, how does that? Well, who makes that? When is that decision made? It can well, it can be made. I mean, again, you get you go pre-harvest, and you know, you know, you have the pH and the bricks and all these things, and you're like, oh, you know, might produced something that's too too fruity too chewy too whatever let's let's during the destemming and sorting process let's leave some stems on there some people leave leaves on there some people you know it just depends um leave stuff on there because we don't know we don't think we can impart what we want just in maybe putting it in a barrel mm. you know we don't want to add anything that's not natural so there's a lot of new wines out there that people put labels on that says natural wines and that's leaving the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars to you know do what they may with these grapes and a lot of times in those natural wines are are kind of attributes that come from the earth that come from those stems and maybe a few leaves that were kind of put in the middle yeah, or a and then you, yeah exactly and then you have like the absolute opposite um that like opus one has and a lot of them a lot of the bigger wine the bigger fancier winemakers have now which are these like optical destemmer sorting machines that literally like take the the grapes up a conveyor belt and they they put an optical like camera on them and they determine what's inside there and if it's perfect or not and they fling off the bad ones and only keep the good ones and it's a pretty amazing like 
machine and concept, but you got to be able to afford one of those suckers. <laughs> and Opus One can, and a lot of these bigger guys can now, and they choose to do that instead of to do the hand stuff. But so. as Louis said, that takes the art out of it. Mm. It does. That's what he, exactly. I think the same thing. Like even like when we travel around, we try to go to like these geeky, nerdy, you know, wineries where I mean, I have to believe most stuff is done by hand. Yeah. You know, versus these massive, you know, vineyards where everything's done and automated. Right. Um, what is it? You is it? You you always want to be part of the harvest. You said you like to do harvest. Oh, well, I would love to do the, harvest. I would love to do oh, harvest. Yeah, for sure. I wish I'd known that. I would have had. You. <laughs> One see, of these make, days, I'm gonna making do connections, yeah, boys. Exactly. You see no, this? exactly. I always wanted yeah. to do it. Um, I, I mean, I have some of the people who who were bigger influences in me getting into the wine business in the first place were those people who talked about going and doing harvest and how it's can be ridiculously hard work, but super rewarding and just, you know. It's, it's, this year was my first harvest and it was the most fun thing I ever did. Uh-huh. And, and just to give a little background on why I was doing harvest. So I'm, I'm, I'm attending, I'm earning my associate's degree in viticulture and enology at Yavapai College in Clarkdale, which is right by Cottonwood, Sedona in that area, and the Verde Valley which the Verde Valley is going to be our next uh, AVA in Arizona. We, mm. have, we have two right now. We have Sonoida and we have Wilcox. Verde Valley is like one step away. It should have been done by now, but everything stopped because of COVID, right? Yep. Um, so Yavapai College has the Viticulture and Enology Program, and they have the Southwest Wine Center, which is where all the wine is made, and they have a student vineyard, which is where I've been working it's awesome. I'm, I'm doing my, my viticulture practicum now, so for the next three semesters, I'll be working in the vineyard. That's so cool. Yeah. That's and awesome. A couple of days ago, I, uh, I weed-whacked a mile. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you need a grunt, I mean, I think you found one tonight, so. <laughs> I don't mind getting in there and get my, my hands and feet dirty, so. All right, sure. so the, uh, first of all, I got, a, I got like blackberry, black currant out of this. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? Yeah. It's very soft for a Sangiovese. It is. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. His new nickname is going to be Super Taster. <laughs> Just call me the tongue. <laughs> 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 All right. So well, appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, fermentation. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that a little bit. And that's where the yeast, right, transform the juice into alcohol. Yes. Yeast, yeast eat sugar yep. and yeast shit alcohol and carbon dioxide. Yep. Okay. That's well put. what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long is this process? Is it, does, again, is there, is it depend? And it, what, if it, it, depends, it depends, what does it depend on? It depends on what you're trying to make. Uh, it depends on the yeast strain that you're using. Um, and it depends on fermentation temperature. So like this, Sangiovese that you just tasted, uh, fermented in, I'd say the fermentation was probably done in about 20 days total. Um, there was some clarification stuff I did after that. It took uh, a full month before I got it to bottle, but I'd say the fermentation was basically done in about 20 days. Um, some white wines that you ferment at low temperatures, they could ferment for months. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So what, like... As far as like the the alcohol content, the ABV, what have you, where is there like for red wine you want it to be between here and here? For white wine you want it to be between here and here? How do you, what, what dictates that? Well, because certain wine, I mean, I know there's a number of wines that we've drank where it's like, oh my God, you can just taste the the alcohol. It's almost like too much alcohol. Like you're almost drinking a, um, 
like a brandy or yeah. something. You know what I mean? Well, I mentioned earlier that old world wines tend to be lower in alcohol content. Um, a normal alcohol content for your typical dry old world red wine, for example, is usually around 125 to 13%. Right? Yep. The same wine made in Napa Valley is going to be pushing 15%. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Um, okay. It's just... It's a stylistic choice, and it's also that you know Napa Valley gets a lot more sun, so the grapes tend to be riper. Yeah. Are red grapes? Do they have more sugar than white grapes typically, or is it not? I mean, not, not, not necessarily. Not necessarily, no. No, okay. not necessarily. Gotcha. Um, so after fermentation is the press, right? Yes. Hold on. Now with the fermentation, I'm going to pull this one out of my backside from memory. Is that where it like gets that crust over the top, and you have to like punch it to? For red wines, yeah, typically, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I, that was ten years ago. Took a little trip up north. Yeah. So big yeah, shoots what happens is now, big all those, possum. All those skins, all those skins float to the top, mm-hmm. and if you just leave them sit up on top, then the yeast can't get any oxygen, and the yeast will all die. Mm-hmm. So that's why they punch it down, or they. Sometimes they pump over. Pump they they pump gotcha. the wine from the bottom over to the top to get to, to kind of break up that cap. Yeah, and get, saw, some, get some more air in the must. The vineyard I went to it was like one old dude. He just had this big metal thing, and he popped yeah. through it and kept on going to the next one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice. So why is it? I think and you mentioned it earlier. White wines are pressed before fermentation, typically. Right, because they don't want them to stay on the skins. Okay. Or else, you, want, get, do, or else you get the other the other color wine, which orange. was orange. Orange, exactly. Jake got it. I've been listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, Louis, like in your case, you, you when you when you make the wine, your wines, are you doing it at your house? Are you doing it at the yeah. college? I mean, where, where does this, this happen? Well, yeah, up till now, I've been doing my wines in my kitchen. Um, when I start my enology uh, practicum after I'm done with the viticulture practicum, so the difference is viticulture is growing wine grapes okay enology is making wine gotcha so that's that's essentially it so then i'll make i'll make wine you know professionally with the college at the college um uh, winery um you know wine that's actually labeled and that that can be sold i can't sell my wine it's you know it's only and my wines because i make it at home i'm typically i i don't usually buy grapes although i probably will at some point because I want to do it, but I don't have a press. Mm. Um, so I typically buy juices that are already um, that are already macerated and, and so that they get the color and everything. Um, it, it's called a prepared juice, and it's usually um, um, it's usually a concentrate, so I have to add water to it, and, and then I ferment it that way. So I, I skip that whole destemming and crushing process. Gotcha. I go straight to fermentation. Yep. Yeah. Got it. And then after the press, of course, we have the aging process, right? And again, so many different variables here, right? Barrels and time and just talk a little bit about that. Right. I mean, you can age in stainless steel if you, you know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, more like Sauvignon Blancs and Pinot Grigios and, and uh, even some of red wines, Cabernets and things. People don't put them in wood. 
you know, it's in stainless steel because you don't want that, any of those nuances in the wine. Um, but you can age them in all kinds of different barrels, you know, oak being preferred, and there's different oak from all around the world that people use and, and that imparts different flavors and things into that wine. Um, even, you know, colors at some point um, that uh, actually Louise pouring us a white right now. Actually, is it is, that, is this one of your meads? This is one of the meads. Oh, it's a mead. All right, while we're, let's talk about meads. I've gotten very <laughs> drunk on meads before. I knew we were going to talk about this. <laughs> like ridiculously drunk. What is, what is mead exactly? Well, so earlier we said that there are, there are three kinds of wine, right? Actually, there are many kinds of wine. Yeah. You can make wine from anything that has sugar in it, any fruit, honey or maple syrup, right? And I actually have examples here of, in, in Europe, I wouldn't be allowed to call this wine. In Europe, the law says you can only call it wine if it's made from grapes. Hmm. The fact is you can make wine from tomatoes, right? <laughs> and I know somebody who makes excellent wine from tomatoes. It tastes like a pizza pie. What? Um, yes. Oh my God. With alcohol? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Kent is in love. It's his two favorite things in one. <laughs> it could be the best thing ever. So this this first mead is it's it's a honey wine. Yeah, that's the one I poured. It's a honey wine. So this is made from honey. It's just hundred percent honey. And totally smells like honey. It totally smells like honey. And you're never gonna guess there is no residual sugar in this. Really? But you know what I was saying? It's really dry for a mead. And it has a lot of acidity, and that's like that's what, unfortunately, my you know when I first started drinking wine, I didn't drink a lot of meads. Meads weren't popular. It was you know that was like your old fart drink. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd add some mead, but now it's super popular. But I, I haven't really experimented drinking a lot of meads except for that one time we were at that dinner. Didn't end well. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but yeah. but to me, meads you know just in my old thought was that they were kind of like syrupy and sickly and sickly sweet sweet and, and i like that typically, i like that they typically you know, typically meads are going to be sweet and they're going to have a lower alcohol content they're going to be around eight percent a little bit more than beer this is fully fermented to dryness 13 and a half percent alcohol so this is a wine you would not know it though you know what I mean? I don't taste like it has. That I've had many content. people. I've had many people go, "Oh, that's too sweet." Yeah, it's not. There's no, no sugar on there. I don't think so no, either. This, it's no, really no. good. I like that a lot. And so, I, honestly, I don't know if I've drank in mead since that night. What? That night. And we had that night something called a braggot, mm-hmm. which is a mead beer hybrid, and that thing knocked your socks off. I mean, it was super high in alcohol. I I know. <laughs> Kid that I know a kid that was in some of my classes that makes some of the best meads I've ever had, and interestingly, even though he's like 22 years old, all of his meads wow. all of his meads are named after uh, uh, old punk rock songs from the Dead Kennedys. Nice, and, uh, nice. You know, <laughs> holiday in Cambodia. <laughs> Ooh, that could be dangerous. <laughs> so the so how how long does does wine have to age before it is bottled? Is there is there like a minimum um, amount of time like or like or can you just well, go right from you can't go right from press my, to bottling you could yeah you could sure why not you could oh really yeah um, theoretically well I so let's talk about champagne we talked about champagne being that elusive fourth kind of wine right yep. think about what they do with champagne they make they make a wine they take a grape that grows in a northern region that 
can't come up to full bricks level, so it it ends up with like eight percent alcohol when they make a still wine out of it. They put it in bottles. They add sugar to it. They chop. This is one of the times when it's perfectly acceptable to chapelize, right? They put sugar in it. They add yeast to it. Let it ferment in the bottle. Wow. And then disgorge it. And Crazy. that's how that's how it gets its its bubbles, right? Yep. So we talked about the other day of secondary fermentation of that yeah. that wine that we were drinking because it kind of had a weird like almost effervescence to it that mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to be there. And I think that's what happened. I think there was some some, some secondary in fermentation the bottle in the bottle, in the bottle for I've, sure. I've had that happen. Yeah, too. but yeah, I mean, so the spark and sparkling wine can be made a million different ways. Right, but the most—I mean, the most well-known, of course, is in champagne and how they do. And the word disgorge—it's not a—it sounds nasty, but it's the really—it's one of the neatest processes, where they take that—it's—it's it's done with a, a crown cap on top first, right? So they put like a beer cap on top after they've added the sugar and the yeast and things, and they let it set and let it set and let it set and. Sometimes it gets um, put on a rack and riddled and all this fun stuff. And then they finally, after so long, disgorge it, which is basically take all the sugars and all the leftovers that have come down to the neck of the bottle and take that out, re-add some more basically wine or things in, and then put an actual, like, you know, cork in there, Mm -hmm. mushroom cork in there. What is it sometimes like when uh, maybe we'll drink an older bottle of wine, Mm -hmm. in the bottom of the glass there's like, that residual stuff sediment right? sediment yeah. sediment yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean is that good thing bad thing it's just part of the deal what's it's, th- there's nothing wrong with it it's a good thing it's typically um a they, call it, of they call it throw right so okay. what it is is it's it's a precipitate of um of of phenolic compounds and tannins that kind of start to bind together and they precipitate out that's mm. all and it just typically means that the wine's going to become a bit mellower because a lot of that stuff's coming out. Okay, gotcha. This is different. This looks like the skins were left in a white. So I'm, yeah, while it we're, looks like while an orange we're, wine. While we're mm-hmm. tasting this, I'll talk a little bit about the thing. You know, the Hold the on. Stuff that's in the bottom. Hold on. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Hang on. I think I got a little petroleum here. <laughs> Better double check. Honestly, I do says. have a little gasoline in there. It's just, it's just me. What is that? It's maple syrup. Is it really? Maple syrup fermented to dryness. This one is 15.7% alcohol. That's a good night. Wow. After you drink a few yeah. of those. Well, that's why you only drink. <laughs> no. No. Uh, I've, I've seen this guy and now that's, I hear his meat that's, stories. That's, <laughs> that's where this kind of stuff comes <laughs> so, in. <laughs> so this, this kind of goes to our discussion on aging, right? When I bottled this, it was... Wow. Barely a, that is drinkable. I could, oh, really? hardly, I could yeah. hardly drink it when I bottled it. It was harsh. It was nasty. It was, and I still, I still I have like, like I still have like eight bottles at home. I, a year later, I brought one in to to my class for the class to taste yeah. so that we could critique it, and it was like, wow, did I make that? That's really good. Like I was it's, really surprised how well it aged. Yeah, I had that happen to me with a cider once too. I found a a cider in the back of a closet after it sat for like two years that I hadn't liked and it was fantastic and I drank like three bottles of it in one night. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the night is still young. Louis my kind of guy. <laughs> and that was actually Sherry's cider. We, we, we had made it at her place. So that, oh, was really? her, that was her cider. And we, you know, we had, we had tried it. We had it in Grolsch bottles. 
Oh, awesome. And, okay. um, and we had tried it when we made it and we, you know, we drank a few bottles and we, we weren't really overly impressed with it. But then like a year later I was there crazy? and I was digging through her pantry and it was like, oh, wait, where did these come from? And I opened one up and it was fantastic. So well, something's just, just like, age well, you know. Well, yeah. not yeah, even, not only long term, but even short term, because there's been a number of times where you, you will open a bottle of wine. Well, you know, we'll have a, have a glass of it and it'll have a certain taste and then it'll be open for say 30 minutes or whatever. What do you say? It burns off or what? It, it, well, blows, it blows off, off. blows yeah. off, yeah. blows yeah. off. And then you have another glass and it tastes totally different. It's, it's incredible. I mean, to it's me, just, the whole thing is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's reacting with the oxygen and, yeah. and it's giving off some of the phenolic compounds that maybe you don't like. It's that a science experiment, it, right? It is, oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Just don't blow up the house. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to bottling. This is the last thing. The importance of bottling. I mean, I, I know, like in when you're when you're brewing beer, that's the only thing I really have it to compare have to compare it to. How how is the process for for wine? Versus, it's pretty much the same. Is it pretty yeah. much yeah yeah? And oh, what about like does, is there a certain like amount of pressure or something that needs to be allowed for in the bottle? I mean, how does how does that work? No, no, no. or expansion. Well, I guess. Uh, no. The, well, but there's a you know that you have a cork right yeah. or a stelvin, which is the screw cap. It's a fancy word for the screw cap they made now, so you don't. Well, not have so. There's there's real cork. There's there's, there's synthetic cork. Synthetic cork. So when you buy there's that a cheap screw one, off. it's a Stelvin. Yeah. Stelvin. 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 Right. I got to remember that yeah. fancy so, I mean, terminology. Where, what, does that make a difference? I mean, where, where are we at on well, that well, these days? It, it, I'm sorry. No, please. I mean. It does make a difference because cork breathes. Yep. Right? So when you make a wine that you intend to cork with a fresh cork, with, mm-hmm. a, with a real cork, like even, even like this, this isn't the best quality. My corks aren't the best quality corks you can get. They're ground and formed corks. They're not straight corks like a fancy winemaker would use. But they breathe. So you're going to get, over time, as the, as the wine ages, in the, the wine can age in the bottle because it has exposure to oxygen through the cork in minute amounts over years. If you use a synthetic cork or Melvin or whatever this was called, Stelvin. 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 <laughs> um, so Stelvin actually is just get a the screw on one, right? Yeah, yeah you actually get a perfect seal, so you're never going to have exposure. So if you're going to put if you're going to put your wine into a bottle like that, where you know that you're never going to have, it's not going to age in the bottle okay. when you have a perfect seal. Okay. Right. Whereas um, with a, re- a real cork, it will age in the bottle. Right. With a real cork, it will age in the bottle. What about synthetic cork? Since it yeah. depends on the synthetic yeah. cork. Yeah, it just depends. It depends on the it's a synthetic composite. Something is it plastic? Is it is it a composite between real cork and plastic? What is it? And the, so is, if is I made wine, is it breathable? If I made wine, everything would go into a what do you call it? What's the screw on one? Stelvin. Stelvin, because there's no way it's going to age. We're going to drink it. Well, whatever's the cheapest and, and option. That, you know what? There, there's yeah. there's there's people in each court right there's like oh you can put a screw cap on something and age it and there are people who are like oh no you can't um there was even a, a trend where some of the fancier more high-end wine in certain countries were starting to go ahead and put a stelvin finish or a stelvin you know screw cap on it to prove that i can put a hundred dollar bottle of wine with a screw cap and it'll be fine 
but trying to get people to buy it. And when I was in the wine sales business, oh, oh, it has this, oh, it can't, can't be any good. It's just like the score thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a cork or a whatever is going to affect the score. Not really. Mm-hmm. Not, and there was, a, there was actually a, a company that was making, had a Stelvin closure made that had like perforations in the top of this there was like three little holes and they actually had like a screen <laughs> because they were trying to prove that you could age that wine mm. with a screw cap. Yeah. yeah so i mean it's it's an evolving thing just like every other business out there you know they're trying to create the more perfect scenario but for what you want right so like the stelvin or the screw cap yeah. how has that been around forever or is that something that kind of came into play a little bit later Oh, it came into play a lot, a lot later. Yeah. Yeah. I, you and know, what was the reason for that? Was it a cost-saving thing? Yeah. They started using corks a thousand years ago. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. yeah. But as far as having a screw top, a cor- though. Cork is, a, cork is a living is, thing. It comes from a tree. And but there are very expensive wines that have Stelvin, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Stelvin, that helps. Sure. Stelvin is a safer... If you're a winemaker and you want to deliver product to the market that's always going to be consistently undamaged... The Stelvin is the safest way to do that. Interesting, because like to the layman, when someone looks at a you know a it's stel- cheap, you're yeah. like, oh, that's a that's, that's the actually, cheap. Yeah. Right? it's actually much. Well, there's a, high, a much higher upfront cost, right, in your winery for mm-hmm. sure, and, and investing in the machinery that's required to apply them, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg, this, these are the only wines that Greg puts the Stelvin on. Uh, all his other wines are corked. Gotcha. Um, he puts them on these because he he rents the machinery from another winemaker. Yep. And just buys the the caps, um, and he does it because this is his wine that he wants to protect the most when it goes to market. Gotcha. Because it's the wine he wants. He wants to. There, there is. You know, I kind of I, I spoke in broad terms when I said you can't age wine under a Stelvin. There's a certain amount of aging that's going to happen, regardless. That's not related to exposure to oxygen. Right. Right. And he wants that to happen in these wines. He would probably not be thrilled with me opening his 2017 now. He'd like it for it to be a little bit older. But I have some laid down, and I'll buy more from him. I didn't even think about bringing the 2018 because I know that I shouldn't open it yet. So on that topic, can a wine, like, get too old, mm-hmm. I guess? you know. But again, from a layman, you're like, oh, my God, that's... Uh that's a vintage 1969, you know, whatever. I mean, at some point it's like it's aged out and good luck yeah. with that. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, well and you, so again, you're, you're, <laughs> we're looking up cork tank. That's yeah. Well, I just, I just put, <laughs> well, I put, because we're on this subject of cork, cork and yeah. there's a lot of things that can happen to a wine if you do use cork and there's something called cork taint and there's if you because you have to wash those right and there's if that chemical that you wash them with remains on them while you're bottling your wine you're imparting a foreign chemical onto your wine yep so anyways it. um what we're talking about the, see the meat's like going the age, ahead like can the age you know, yeah you know, of the, course how layman, old is too old yeah how old is too old that yeah. layman thinks depends, oh my god it depends this is a, on the wine exactly it depends on the wine there's certain wines that are are meant to be aged longer so that uh 175 that large format that we opened when we had dinner with yeah. stevens right yeah that was an older sangiovese interestingly enough mm-hmm. um and 
it was on the verge. It, it had been laying down in our cellar, and but it was definitely on the verge. And, and the only way you can really tell is if you open it up, um, you smell it, you can start to smell that age, um, or you pour it into a glass and you get variation. And this is not a good one to show because it's a white wine, but so on a red wine, if you get in the glass, you pour get... That, pour that Pinot and send it my way. You know, if you get... A different color variation in the glass between the rim of of the wine and the yeah. actual interior of the bowl of the glass, you know that you're having some aging because that color is being pulled down and you have this like white rim. It's also bricking. Yeah. Bricking. Yeah. So young wine, young red wine tends to be purple in color. And as that purple goes down from purple to like it's almost brick translucent, red. Right? brick red and then like cherry red and then you get this kind of oranging effect to it and you can see that not just in the bottle if it's a clear bottle but you should never have on red wine but in in a glass and then you see this like clear rim and the colors start pulling down you know that wine is starting to get older and the more orange that red wine gets you know the older it is and some it's going to lose those um phenolics which Louis talked about, and it's going to lose a lot of its fruit. You're going to have, you know, a lot of the characteristics that you wanted in that wine kind of slipping away, you know. And there are resources that you can use. I have an app on my phone where I keep mm-hmm. track of all the wines in my cellar. And the, the obviously, it doesn't know anything about my wines, right? But some of the... Some well, of the, well let's, I have, let's teach it about your wines. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a, a 2016 Bordeaux from Madoc that it tells me not to drink till 2031. Really? Yeah. Um, I have I have a 2009 Cabernet Franc that it's it's telling me is is I should have had by 2018. Past you its know, prime. So it's past its but prime. But who, who knows? So hold on a second. Who knows? Let, let, what was that movie that we watched about that guy that was a total freaking scam artist? Yeah. I watched you it on watched Netflix it. too. Yeah. Um, poison Grapes or... Po- yeah. Um, this guy, he bamboozled so many people yeah. for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, just, I have the book. I read the book, yeah. What the... I mean, again, I mean... It's an Indonesian guy, I think. Or to- yeah, yeah, totally taking advantage of people. Sour Grapes on Netflix. Sour Grapes. Yep, Sour Grapes on Netflix. What a racket. Holy crap. This and he guy, was doing it in-house. He was blending different yeah, yeah, wines exactly. in-house. And he was able to mimic these really yeah. high-dollar wines. He was just doing it in his kitchen. Yeah. So how can you blend like that to, to mimic, to accurately mimic, to in fooling these people that are paying... Was that guy smarter uh, than the average bear? So or what was the deal? <laughs> his name was Yogi. <laughs> yeah. And, and Louis, tell me if I'm going down the wrong path. But a lot of, no, I'll back it down, too many of the people who are the big dollar wine buyers out there, they don't they know. Don't right? know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. They don't know. They, they think have... because it's got the, wor- the words Lafitte Rothschild or Chateau Latour or whatever. Oh my God, that year, and they know the vintages, that year, it, w- it has to be good. Or Robert Parker gave it 100, it's the perfect wine. You know, they don't know. And they don't know. They know because it costs a lot of money, and some wine wannabe nerd, not real nerd, these guys right here, told them, oh my God, it's totally worth $300 a bottle, well, $3,000 so a bottle. Here's the thing about him, though. I mean, it, read the book. The book goes into a lot of detail about the things that he did and, and about what he, what led him up to that. 
right? Hmm. He was a super taster. This guy could identify. Mm-hmm. This was yeah. one of the people that could identify yeah. down to the row in France where the grapes Unbelievable. came from. Unbelievable. Right? Is that true? Like down to the row? Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Are, you being, are you being like sarcastic no. or is that no. true? No, no, people, people, make, people make wines hyperbolic. that say <laughs> Sorry, row, yes. blah, 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 block, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he could do it. And Unbelievable. And that's, that's how he was able to make those blends because he, he, he could taste so well. He, had, he started out buying actual high dollar collectible wines. He had tasted the real thing. And he had tasted mm-hmm. the real thing and he knew what the real thing right. tasted like and he bought cheap modern wines, relatively cheap modern wines, wines that only cost five or $600 a bottle to blend together to make these $10,000, $12,000 bottles of wine. Unbelievable. That tasted similar enough that they could fool anybody but him, basically. Yep. So mind you, Louis just said cheap $500. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, I said relatively speaking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and where he got greedy was he tried to pass off wines... He tried to pass off to wines work. during World War II that, mm-hmm. that were supposedly bottled during World War II mm-hmm. when it turned out that those vineyards, those wineries had been shut down by the Nazis and hadn't made wines those years. And trying to pass them off to someone with unlimited resources yep. was right. one of the right. Koch brothers Bingo. who, yeah. Yeah. if there's exactly. going to be a guy that's going to put an army together to come find you, yep. mm-hmm. it's going right. to be that guy. that guy. Exactly. Yeah. I, I remember that whole ordeal and I was in the business at that point and I was like, oh my God, this could really ruin a lot of people and it, 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 and it kind of down played the value of people who really loved and appreciated wine and were good at selling wine and it just oh it devalued the industry devalued, exactly devalued the industry the industry Absolutely. yeah good for way a time period for sure yeah have you guys ever had a chateau le gros i've been there before <laughs> i've never had the wine <laughs> all right so here's here's the thing before i met megan you know, i didn't know the first thing about wine and now i'm like obviously like an expert taster basically um it tongue of it. magic i think i've been called so the uh, <laughs> that was that was wine that was wow <laughs> so I, and i've heard megan tell a lot of people this you know they're like she's just like drink what you like it's that simple. Drink what you like. It doesn't have to be a $500 bottle of wine. It could be a $3 bottle of wine. Who knows? Who cares? Drink what you like. Yeah. Accurate? I, exactly. That's, and it goes to what I said earlier. There's no reason you couldn't find something under $20 to make you perfectly happy. I don't care if you buy two-buck chuck. If it makes you happy in that moment with the meal that you're having or just to sit and watch TV or to, you know, to have with your cigar or whatever. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, two-buck Glenn. <laughs> so pairing wine with food I mean I know we go on this for hours but I mean there's time where I mean honestly Megan we've had red wine with fish you know I mean we've had white yeah. wine with steak not because we're trying to pair it necessarily this it's Pinot just, Noir would be great with fish mm-hmm. it's what we oh, yeah. what we enjoy you know it doesn't so uh, tell so, me tell me tell me your thoughts about that Louis my first thought on pairing wines is if you're not sure what to do, bubbles go with everything. I like it. I like this guy. I like so it. So always, if, if, if really, if, if, you, if you're just stuck and you just don't know what to get, yep. just get some kind of sparkling wine or champagne, and that will work. Mm-hmm. I know Megan agrees it literally with goes with everything. Um, there, there are a couple of rules of thumb. You, don't want, you want something based on 
how delicate or robust the flavor of your food is going to be. You want the wine to kind of complement that. Sure. And it should either complement or contrast, right? Yep. Um, and similarly, if we're talking about desserts, then you generally don't want a wine that's going to be... Um, you generally don't want a wine that's going to be sweeter than your dessert or yep. desserts. Yeah, you generally don't want exactly. a wine that's going to be sweeter than your dessert right. because yeah. it'll make the, the the dessert taste flat. Right. Is this, are we talking right. about like port wines or are we yeah. are we beyond that now? Well, even, I mean, even, you know, traditional still wines, I mean, you, or, or sparkling wines, you're like, oh, champagne goes with everything. Yeah, but then you put it with something sweet for dessert and sometimes it's a clash. So, Unless it's ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's one thing. Best pairing in the world. French fries and champagne. Really? French fries and champagne. Or so, chicken. There fried are certain, chicken. There fried are certain chicken things. I, mean, I can there are probably, you know, a half dozen meals that stick out in my mind where, you know, we, we have a, tried, made a made a uh, made an attempt to pair the wine you know with the meal that have been like out of this world. Right. And even like going out, and then there's this one meal that sticks out in my mind. Remember we went to, uh, was it Merkin in yeah. Cottonwood, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I had this pasta dish with this red wine, and I will never forget as long as I live how perfect that pairing was. Mm-hmm. As long as I live. It was like, I, I can't, I don't even know how to explain it. Right. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It doesn't happen that often. No. But when it does happen it, and it clicks, it's like, damn, that was incredible. Yeah, one of the best experiences. If if, if if Vegas ever becomes a thing that we can all do again, um, what do you want? The honey. Um, there, it's it's expensive, but if you want a pairing experience, go to Picasso. Oh yeah, right? heard that. And do the uh, do the prefix with the wine pairing, and if you can afford it, do the upgraded wine pairing, and they will bring you a wine for every course in the meal really that's perfectly paired with that course let's take it one step further the glassware makes a difference correct yes okay yeah, absolutely talk a little bit about that because it does it, it's I mean, hard I to talk it, a little bit about okay I, th- I think it's i think it's something that people should be aware of though because even even i have noticed that the glassware has made a difference mm-hmm. so number one no red solo cups <laughs> except you know for what, beer except for, well no and you know what again it goes back to if if that's all you have and that's the vessel of delivery of your wine better that than the bottle okay right. so fine exactly. all right and i went through a riedel glass class and tasting and it was mind-blowing i mean they brought out all of the fancy glassware and they took you know five or six wines and they poured them in and out of all these different glasses including not a red solo cup but something like that and it does make a difference it absolutely makes a difference because it's going to direct that wine to hit your palate in a certain way or it's going to allow that wine to have bigger bigger surface area to get more oxygen to release all those phenolics and all those beautiful bouquets and, and aromas and scents and things like that it, it does make a difference. But um, if you have a good all-purpose wine glass, use a good all-purpose wine glass. It'll be fine for whatever. And a champagne flute is the wrong this is glass fine. for champagne. No, Bingo. Is that right? Bingo, yes, thank you. No kidding. So, okay, that's interesting. What what should you drink champagne out of? 
Um, I, in, a, in a perfect world, what's what's the best glass? I, I drink it out of a white wine glass. Yeah, white wine glass is perfect. But okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. something. So it's a, a little wider. You at want the top, something. You're you want something with a wider, you yeah, know, with, with more surface area. Yeah, gotcha. They make the champagne flute so you can see the bubbles. Right. Yep. Right. Yep, yep. Well, and not not necessarily. What's the uh, the old uh, saucers that they used um, way back when? Don't don't you know drink it out of a saucer, but a white wine glass. Even one of these yeah. is fine. But yeah, you want those bubbles to come up and come out and, and be active and you know. My friend John that I was talking about, the one that's the wine writer. Yeah. He lives in Chicago, and and uh, I go to his. Well, not this year, but every year I I go to his uh, his place. He does. He has a pig roast in the fall. And uh, we sit waiting for the guests roasting the pig, and we'll drink. You know, he's got a, an impressive wine collection. We'll drink some wine from his wine collection with charcuterie while we're while we're waiting on the pig to roast. And yeah. and last time I was there, we were drinking one wine, and then he said, oh, "We're going to get this other wine." And he took my glass, and I said, "John, I can use the same glass." And he said, "No, we're using the proper glass for the next wine. We're not heathens." Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's something about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's something we said. And, you know, again, if you've got them or you have the means to buy, you know, a collection of glasses that are proper, great, go for it. But in like the restaurant industry, not everybody has those, you know, to clean those glasses and polish them and make sure they're all in good conditions. Really hard. It's really expensive to do. Um, have a good all-purpose wine glass. Uh, for the longest time, I would not touch a stemless glass because I thought it, you know, I mean, your hand's all over it, and it pollutes it, and warms it, and get all weird s- stuff all over it. Now I'm just like, what? A, it's fine, whatever. <laughs> it's an exceptionally loud table, by the way. It <laughs> is. Every time you set something down. Fung, fung. You know, but to go back to the drink what you want with who you want and when you want, just, I mean, I brought way back, just out of college, I when I had first moved here and got introduced to Trader Joe's and two buck, three buck, whatever yeah. the buck chuck it is now, and you were allowed to bring wine and booze onto cruise ships, I brought like four bottles of Charles Shaw wine on a cruise ship. So let me ask you this. It was awesome. People were like, this is so great. What is it? And I'm like, um. It's so true. So what makes, let's say there's a, whatever, what makes a $500 bottle of wine, a $500 bottle of wine, and a $3 bottle of wine, a $3 bottle of wine? Perception. It's a freaking racket. That's what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, you know, again, you have, there's the regular, it starts with regulations. It's whatever, whatever body, governing body, whatever, is regulating it, that's where it starts. And also, the cost of wine, it's just like, you know, in the craft beer industry, which you know, and I think we're a lot more familiar with because it's kind of closer into our generation and closer into Arizona than winemaking, but it's, it's all about volume, right? I mean, making wine in Arizona from Arizona grapes is expensive. There's not that much of it. There's not that many vineyards, right? And there's, there's not that many vineyards. The land's expensive, especially if you're making it up in the Verde Valley. The land's very yeah. expensive up there. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So you've got you've got all this cost built into it. You're going to have to sell it for a higher price, yep. right? Makes it's sense. like craft beer. Yep. I, you know? I still don't believe that Maynard makes a profit up there. No kidding. I, wow. I could be wrong. I don't know yeah. anything about his business. Yep. But, you know, it, that land up there is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he sells for a reasonable price for Arizona wines. Right. Agreed. Right. Agreed. You know. Yeah. But again, it's perception is reality, right? People are, you know, they're going to grab a bottle of wine from Arizona and go, oh, it's Arizona. Must not be very good. Yeah. I'd rather have this $500 bottle from Napa. Well, guess what? That is 
darn good, yeah. really good, and it's from Arizona. Hey, Greg. Pinot Noir. Hey, Greg, she's talking about your Pinot Noir. From, P- from Arizona. From Arizona, right? I, I did. I did taste a, a Chardonnay from Arizona years ago. I won't say who it is, whose it was. It was okay. It, it was it was a struggle though. It was a struggle to get through and 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 do a tasting with people who knew nothing about Arizona wine and tell them how good the Chardonnay really was for Arizona. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "No, I like Sonoma Cadre, or I like Rambar. Well, good for and you. Drink what you like." And Napa Sonoma is a terrible place to make Chardonnay. <laughs> I know they should be making it in Oregon, but let's not get started. On what that. was the uh, my, my our, our good friend uh, Jim Wyan? What was he talking about? Remember the Pinot oh, Noir? Russian River Pinot Noir. Uh, That's you will the only never place. find a better Pinot Noir than I Russian River. Completely disagree. <laughs> Me too. And I and I think that I think there are, are at least a handful of at least a handful of winemakers in Bordeaux who, or in uh, Burgundy who would disagree as well. So. Uh, there's a guy, um, you know who this is. I don't know if you know him, Gary Vayner, Vaynerchuk. He is Gary V. Just just Google Gary V. Um, he um, is a guy from New York. He grew up working in his parents' wine shop in New York. And he started, before he started his like huge empire and making bazillions on social media and everything else, he started uh, a little wine, almost like a podcast, right? He did wine reviews. And he did re- wine reviews from Arizona wines. He does them from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And amazing so if you ever want to like watch us like joe average review wines watch that guy's shows i mean they go back you know 15 years and it's just an absolute ball to watch him and go hey this wine's from you know minnesota or this wine's from virginia or this wine's from burgundy mm-hmm. they're making wine in all 50 states exactly right now. yeah are they really amazing. yeah Oh my they're God. growing wine. I should say they're growing wine in all 50 states right now. I think Didn't we had a wine that. from Nebraska. with. Or, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so I think we probably can guess what the biggest wine region, the most volume in the United States is. Yep. Right. So the biggest wine state, let's say. California. Yeah, California. California. Yeah. You know what the second is? You're, I know what you're going to say. It's going to be Arizona. Uh, Michigan. New York. Yeah. What? Huge wine country. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Between yeah. the finger, between well, there's th- there's three things that go into it. There's the Finger Lakes. Mm-hmm. There's the North Shore on Long Island, mm-hmm. and they're making a ton of uh, of uh, table grapes and and um, two buck chuck grapes yeah. are growing in there. What too. do you think yeah. about this? So like, um, I don't know. I don't think they're still there, but up in Pine, there was a place called Trident Winery. Oh God. I don't know if you've heard of this, but they were like making uh, moonshine, basically. They were making wine, but it was like out of like all these like leftover fruits. It might have been peaches. Mm-hmm. It might have grapefruit. been pineapple. might have been grapefruit, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I thought the wines were good. Yeah. You know, it was fantastic. Exactly. Perception like, is reality you for can you. Make, you can make wine out of any fruit. Yeah. 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 That's, how, that's how my friend Tom made that that. That tomato wine because he was teaching a class. Well, we're going to circle back. He told them, he told them you can make wine out of any, out of any fruit. And somebody said, "What about tomatoes?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I suppose you can make wine out of tomatoes. It's a fruit." And the guy said, "I call bullshit on that." So Tom went to the farmers market and bought no a case way. of tomatoes and made wine out of it and won the fruit wine competition at the Emerging Winemakers Conference. Oh my god, we, we have to taste it. It was fantastic. I'm going to find some of that tomato stuff. Tomato wine. Jeez, it's like uh, Gino's East wine. <laughs> no, no. Okay, Luminati's wine. Oh so great. All right. Well, we've we've bored some people to death. 
How about you, Shoots? You I'm, hang I'm, there, buddy? I'm halfway there. This is our marathon I was wine say, episode. It could, the, it the, wine is, the wine is kicking in, and it's yeah. gotten the chat going a little uh, bit. I, I need some more. What do you call this? Off the rails slightly here? Just a little bit. So, <laughs> oh, before we let Louie go, oh, unless boy. he's willing to come back, he's such an interesting cat. Um, not only is he, you know... The wine guy and viticulturist and what's econologist? What is enology? Enology. All right, I'm gonna have to drive. Um, Also a gambler. Let's Mm. get into this just a little bit. We don't have a ton of time, but I I do want to talk about this. I know you've participated in some World Series of Poker events, correct? And um, is there such thing as being a good gambler? Well, first I'd like to draw a distinction between playing poker and gambling. Okay. Because playing poker isn't really gambling. It you know, is though. Why is well, it there's, there's an element of chance to poker, yeah. right? Um, but so when you gamble, when you go to the casino and you gamble, you sit down at a blackjack table or you sit in front of a machine or at a roulette table or a craps table, whatever. Yep. You're playing against the house, and the odds are such that the house has has the the best of it. Right. They always have the so advantage. They always have the advantage. If the bet that you make is is you know the odds of of it hap of that event happening is seven to one they're only going to pay you six to one hmm. right yep that means that you know sometimes you'll win and you'll get that six to one but you're not going to win six times for each time you know or you're not going to lose six times for each time you, you win you're going to lose seven times for each time you win yeah in poker you're playing against the other players and poker is all about making good decisions based on imperfect information. So based on what you can see, the cards in your hand, and in the case of like Hold'em or Stud, the cards you can see on the board, that's all the information you have. But you have an idea. You can calculate what the odds are of the event happening that would lead to you winning that pot, how much money's in the pot. You have to keep track of that. And then you know whether it's a good bet or not. So the example I like to use with people is if you're drawing to a flush and hold them after the flop and you have two hearts and there's two hearts on the board and you need one more heart, right? You know that there are nine hearts left in the deck. You don't know who's got what, right? But there's only 40... You've seen five cards, so there's, there's 47 uh, cards left. Nine of those cards are hearts. So you know that, that, that the odds are... You know that the odds are 47 to 9 against you hitting it. So you break that down at roughly 4 to 1. Right? If the pot has less than four times the amount of money that you have to call to stay in, then you're making a bad call. So if like- the pot has more than that, then you're making a good call. Because in the long run, you're going to win often enough to pay for the times that you lose, and then some. But if you make those bad calls, then so that's why it's not really gambling. Gotcha. Because it's a long-term game and yep, it's a math gotcha. game. Yep, yep. And it's about making good decisions. It's about not calculated know, decisions. Calculated decisions and not like not going on. Oh, I feel it this time, even though there's only two dollars in the pot and I have to call four. Right. Right. You don't do that crap. But if the pot's got forty-five dollars in it, and the guy just went all in for three bucks. Well, yeah, I'm going to call that. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. It's not UFC Saturday night. Yeah, I was going to say, does Producer that a, Jake. Did, do you ever touch any of the, the sports gamblings or sports lines? 
No, the closest I come to sports gambling is when I go to Vegas in January. I usually make futures bets on the World Series and the and the um, For, uh, pennant races. And I've got I've got like eight bets at home that I have no idea if they're even gonna be good. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> What, what, what's going to happen to all the people who bet, bet on like the World Series and the well, Super Bowl? And I think if the playoffs happen and they actually name divisional champions and they actually name league champions and they actually name a World Series champion, then my bets are live. But if for some reason the season ends and it never gets to the playoffs, yep. then I think I could probably turn my bets in and get a refund. I think. I don't know. That's crazy. But I think that's probably the case. That's crazy. So besides poker, what other um, like when you go to Vegas, what do you enjoy doing? I love to play craps. I love to play. But, so craps is like the best odds, right? Is that my understanding? <laughs> do you have to know what you're doing? Craps, no, Backer. craps is the most fun game. That's what craps is. When you hear people yelling in a casino and hooting yeah. and hollering, that's a craps table, right. typically. Yeah. Um, Bakker odd or back? Isn't that supposed to be the best odds? If well, you, yeah. But you have so, to have a lot of money to lay down in order to get those so odds. Here, here's the other thing to consider, though. When you're playing craps, you're making decisions. When you're playing Baccarat, you're not making any decisions. Mm. Interesting. So you have no input into the outcome at all. Yep. You're um, at the mercy, right? You're at the, you're at the complete mercy of the dealer. When you're playing craps, you're deciding where you're putting your bets. And then the event happens and you might even be the one throwing the dice. You might even be in complete control by throwing the dice. Right. So, you know, as a gambler, I like a game like craps more than that because at least I have something to say. Same thing with blackjack. I can choose whether the hit or hold, I can choose whether the, um, you know, whether the surrender, which I would never do, um, or, you know, double or, or double or anything like that. Uh, even um, what about roulette? See, roulette's roulette's another thing that it's. I, I, I've done it. I actually have a funny story about roulette that happened uh, a couple of trips ago. You know, it's it's another one where the only decision you can make is what number you're going to put your your chips on. As soon as you do that, it's out of your hands. There's there's nothing you can do to try and mitigate losses or anything like that. You yeah. can't influence in any way. Right. Um, I was a couple of trips ago. I was when I got into Vegas, I sat down for lunch and I posted on Facebook that I was having lunch at the Mirage and a buddy of mine from New York responded, you know, in a comment, he said, you know, put $10 on black 29 for me. You did. And I was like, I was like, there's no, f-. he's, he's never sending me 10 bucks, not in a million years. Yeah. So no, I'm not going to put $10 on black 29 for him later that night. I'm having a great night because everything's going my way. I can't do anything wrong and I'm winning at everything I play <laughs> and I'm up like 800 bucks. <laughs> And I'm, and I'm drinking and I'm having fun and I'm with a bunch of people that I've just met and we're standing around shooting the shit and I look over and there's a roulette table with like one person at it. This is downtown. This is like in the Golden Nugget or something. Yeah. And I looked over and I said, oh, this buddy of mine wanted me to put 10 bucks down on Black 29 for him. I'll go do that. And I put the $10 on Black 29 and I look up and realize that Black 29 had just come out on the previous roll. No way. So I turned around to one of the guys and I said, oh shit, his number just came out on the last roll. And he said, well... He said, we know that has no effect on the next roll, right? So yeah. no big deal. And I yeah. turned back around, and she's paying it out. It came out again. No way. Oh, my God. Hit a black 29 two times in a row. <laughs> God, I freaking love roulette. I swear to God. Just, I, I don't know. I, for some reason, I think your, your chances are, uh, are pretty good on roulette. Well, especially yeah. if you're just playing the colors. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I always play zeros. I always play zeros mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely, every single time. Um, do you want to talk Illuminati or no? There's not a whole lot to say. No. Um, I liked it because it rhymed. 
All right. Uh, it was it was kind of it was kind of a nod to. So I got my education late in life. Yeah. Um, I went back to school in my thirties around the time I got divorced, um, and earned two degrees and became a software engineer. And when I got my first degree, I decided, well, that makes me smarter than everybody else. So I'll call myself a Digirati Illuminati <laughs> because it rhymes. <laughs> I thought you were a member or something. No, 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 no. That's just what I've been calling myself for 20 years now. That's. <laughs> so you don't have any, like, uh, uh, what, pyramid tattoos or anything like that? No, no. Gosh darn it. We, we might talk about one of my tattoos later, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Over, over some more mead, perhaps. <laughs> so we have the legend of the mantra in the building tonight. So uh, you got some big hype to live up to. Every episode, well, most episodes, if we get to it, we ask our guests if they have a mantra that they live by. And this guy over here has, like, our go-to. The ultimate mantra. Yeah, show mantra. So, uh, yeah, big shoes to fill, but what do you got? You know, I actually thought about this quite a bit, and I was discussing it with Sherry earlier. And I have a code that I live by that's my personal thing. It's not something that I say to myself every day, so it's not really a mantra. But then there's a mantra that Sherry and I use all the time. We like to travel a lot. And you know when you travel a lot, things don't always go the right way. And the thing that our response that we always say is it's all part of the adventure. Mm, right? I like it. So that's, that's kind of the mantra that, that, uh, that I would have brought to the table. Yep. Um, the, thing, the code that I live by is to be honest with myself. And that's where the tattoo comes in. On my leg, I have a tattoo. Back in my 20s, I read a series by Terry Brooks called The Sword of Shannara. Mm. It's a fantasy adventure series, and the sword is is a magic sword. It doesn't cut. It's it's a broadsword, and it has a, a hilt. Uh, uh, on the hilt has a a, tor- a hand holding a torch with a flame running up the blade. And when he lays it up against his, at the flesh of his enemies, it forces them to see the truth about themselves. And if they can't handle that, you know how evil they are. They can't lie to themselves and rationalize it all. It destroys them. So my tattoo is actually tattooed upright because swords are not typically tattooed upright because that means that they're in use yep and it's it's up against my flesh constantly reminding me that i have to be honest with myself interesting Hmm. yep i like it i like it that seems like a way cooler tattoo than i am a geoholic (laughs) (laughs) hit the the lovely megan up with that one oh yeah go ahead what you're here you've contributed what's the mantra I don't think I really have a mantra, but I thought we already had it with I'm, "drink what you like." No, that is, you know, it could be, but it doesn't cost you anything to do the right thing. Always do the that right easy. thing. It's it's yep. simple, and Great. it can cost you a ton to do it. Do the wrong thing. Oh, I mean, it's, no doubt, it's, it's it's super simple. You know, I mean, uh, Kent and I kind of talk about that a lot now lately, especially doing what I'm doing now, and, and every once in a while, you know, you got to give a little you know, something extra to get some good karma in life. And it doesn't cost you anything to do that. Yep. For sure. Agreed. You know, hundred percent. Very good. But, uh, hit him with, uh, since we got two interesting characters here, hit him with, all your, right. Uh, well, we got one other one and we'll just go with the first half of it. Um, this to this point in your life, what would your autobiography be called? My autobiography would probably be called Jack of all trades. Okay. Because before you know, before I went back to school, I yep. I did lots of things. You know, I loaded airplanes at the airport. I was a chimney sweep. I was 
you know, <laughs> awesome. customer service work. I did I did all kinds of stuff just to make ends meet. Yep. So yep. Totally understand. Probably yeah. what it'd be called. Yeah. And it kind of like has it. a little gambling aspect in there. Jack of all trades. It works <laughs> on multiple like levels. Yeah. What about you, Megan? No, no, I, no. I don't know. I don't. I, 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 Jack of all trades. The sequel. Her, her autobiography would be Drink What You Like. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Uh, oh, Absolutely. All right. You guys got anything else, man? I, I think well, we, we, I think we, we This has been we fantastic. Did, we didn't. Oh, drink more wine. No, no, no. Well, yeah, that's it. But in the beginning, you kind of talked, you touched on this a little bit. So I know Louie from curling, right? Yeah. But here's the six degrees of separation. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I met Louie at the curling club, right? And we're chit-chatting, and I met his son. And I was like, God, you look familiar. I don't know why you look familiar. So Was it your son? No. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't met him yet. You know, I was always skeptical of his mother. Wasn't really his mother. <laughs> so Louis' son is best friends. Or former best friends. Still best friends. Still best still friends. Still best friends. They still spend a lot of, of time together. Of a, of a niece of a very good friend of mine, uh, Joe Campbell. Oh, who, yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah, who, right, yeah. You know. Desert Eagle. Desert Eagle. And my, yeah. you know, former coworker from Sky Chefs, I've known forever. Yep. And it was just the, you know, the most bizarre thing. The people that you meet curling now with the wine connection, you know. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's hey, a small world. There are, curling draws the most unique people. And, and Louis That's was all the, I can say. Louis was the honorary captain of the U.S. men's curling team, right? At the World Championships. At the World Championships at right. Vegas. Yeah. yeah. How right, cool right is after that? the Olympics there, yeah. So awesome. Amazing. Awesome, I mean, awesome. Great experience, I'm sure. It was. It was. It was a fantastic experience. The best part was wearing... You know, they gave they gave us actual team gear with our names on it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And Seb and I were sitting in the casino playing um uh uh gal poker. Yeah. And uh Schuster came in with his wife and he looked at us and he was like, Where the fuck did you get those uniforms? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The honesty of curlers. What a great story. What a great story. <laughs> Not afraid to call an F bomb out at the right time. <laughs> So cool. Well, do you guys got anything else you want to say? Maybe any last words? No, I Besides think Besides the fact you got to go home with me. Very much. Um, you know, it, it, this was great to taste, taste Louis' wines. Um, I mean, I, I knew you were a winemaker. I'd never had your wines before, and they're fantastic. And, you know, I, I hope uh, the emerging winemaker thing keeps going so, you know, you can win some more awards for them. And it, it's going to be great to taste some a couple years down the road, see what they're like. Yep. How about you, Louie? Any last words? Um, I, you know, all I want to do is I want to plug out Yavapai College again. Um, you know, they have a great program up there, and their their program director is is uh, one of the forty under forty right now in the wine industry. Nice. So uh, they're they're really they're really doing special things up there. Very cool. Very cool. I'm sure it's exciting to be a part of that that growth as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Boys, got anything? Louis's got his uh, girlfriend has way better taste in baseball teams than he does. Other than that, we're good to go. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, hey, you, want, you want me to dr- drop more f bombs? <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here. This is awesome. Um, our longest episode by far, but Sorry. I also think that no, no, it's fantastic. I mean, a lot of good information. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it absolutely. 
Well, we hope we're going to reach out to a, a even bigger breadth of, of exactly. listeners, exactly. viewers. We're going exactly. to make even more friends and add even more exactly. value. <laughs> yep, yep. We'll see who the real fans are. <laughs> we'll have a uh, test at the end of this one. Who stuck it out? Exactly. All right, man. All right, well, let's, uh, let's put a bow on this one. Check us out at thegeoholics.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn by searching for The Geoholics and download all our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, Download our app from landsurveyorsunited.com. Email us at info at thegeoholics.com if you're interested in being a friend of the program or a guest on a future show. Dismiss. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. Yeah. How soon is now? Support our friends of the program every chance you get. Pay it forward. Add value. Make friends. Until next time, everybody, stay safe and healthy. Once again, thank you to our friends of the program, Bad Elf GPS. Find them at bad-elf.com. Land Surveyors United, landsurveyorsunited.com. LIDAR News at lidarnews.com. Parkland College Land Survey Program, parkland.edu slash surveying. Unifly, U-N-I-F-L-I dot A-E-R-O. Diamondback Land Surveying at diamondbacklandsurveying.com. Advanced Geodetic Surveys at agsgps.com. Tiger Supplies at tigersupplies.com. Cyanic Automation at getjobbook.com. Safety Apparel, you can find them at safetyapparel.us. And finally, Get Kids Into Survey at getkidsintosurvey.com.